All right, everyone. Welcome back to the 307 Podcast. Man, this is, a I think, for a lot of you guys that have been listening to the podcast for a long time, following my endeavors for a long time, this is a long-awaited episode for many of you guys. So, you're welcome. Go ahead and tell them, Justin. <laughs> Justin, tell them they're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Yep, you're welcome. This is a long-awaited episode. You know, last year, about this time last year, maybe a little later in the month, a lot of people were requesting this conversation with this man who we have in the studio today, Justin Hamilton, the ultra dad. A lot of you guys know him as on Instagram, but uh, there's kind of a a special kind of unspoken bond, I guess, that's formed between me and Justin over the years <laughs> because of this race called the Mid-State Mile, which we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. But, you know, things happen when they're supposed to happen. I don't rush I don't I don't rush these conversations like things happen when they're supposed to happen and today we have Justin Hamilton in the studio just for you guys. Welcome Justin. Glad to be here brother. Dude, what a freaking day. Yeah, you uh yeah, you showed me some really interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pull that mic up a little bit closer Justin. There you go. Act there like you go. All right. Yeah, yeah. There you All go. Right. I sound like a professional. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so yeah, man. What what a day, dude. If we could um if every day was like today, we would be some beasts, wouldn't we? Yeah, we would, brother. I uh I haven't eaten that good right after a run, uh probably ever. So uh yeah, my body doesn't know what to do right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So me and Justin have spent the day together. We started off with a run this morning on the Penhody Trail. It's like 12 and a half miles. Yep. What did you think about that run, man? So it was, <clears throat> well, it was beautiful for one, for what we could see with all the foliage that's here now. But the number one thing I noticed is how much running we were doing uh, compared to where I run out in East Georgia. And uh, it's just super, super hilly is what I call it. Uh, steep out there. So I do more, more or less power hiking. And uh, we were running today, so uh, yeah, it was a good trainer run for me. Uh, and then uh, what followed, man, was the real the real treat, in my opinion, uh, <laughs> when you took me to the saunas. Okay, all right. Well, hey, I'm so I, I'm used to the sauna and the cold plunge. Um, I know, guys. I tell you guys that I don't cold plunge. I actually do. Uh, <laughs> so I just tell you guys I don't cold plunge because I hate how hyped up it is on uh, on social media. But I actually do. But yeah, that was my this. So that was my longest and hardest run, the one we did this morning since I finished Cocodona. And man, there was a there was like a few moments during that run, especially when we were going back on the ridge line, when we you know we were going down some of those. Um, those kind of flowing downhill sections mm -hmm. on that single track where I was just like, man, this feels so good to be running again and just Free. flowing down through there. And <clears throat> gosh, what an awesome freaking run this morning. 
And having you out there too, man. Like I train a lot by myself. Yeah. Do too. you? Yep, absolutely. I figured you did because I don't ever see you posting. Every once in a while, with if, other people. if I get the opportunity to run with somebody, I always I tell my wife this. I always say yes, uh, and I don't discriminate against who they are. It's always an opportunity to get to know a different type of human. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you run for two hours with somebody, especially if it's a little hard, you get to know that person like you hung out for a couple of days. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I always take the opportunity, but uh, unfortunately, no, I find myself alone in the woods a lot. I do too, man. I mean, I'm training... I say ninety percent of my running yeah. is probably by myself, maybe more than that. But isn't it crazy how much faster the time and the miles goes by when, like, we were out there this mo- like today while we were running? There probably wasn't a grand. There was maybe a grand total of like maybe fifteen minutes total where we weren't talking back yeah. and forth to each other, and that was on the the few little climbs that we had. But um, it's just like we got to the end of that. And I'm like, how long was that run? Like 12 and a half miles. And dude, I could still be out there doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I felt good. I didn't. So uh, whenever I run with somebody, especially having good conversation, I don't, I hardly drink. And so like when I got back, I had plenty of tailwind left over. That's how I knew it was, uh, it was yeah. an easy run mentally. I wasn't, I was just flowing. It felt so good, dude. Yeah. There's a part of me that wanted to run like 30 or 40 miles today, but I'd have you to got a big effort coming up. Yeah. So we'll do that another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to take you on that Four Ridges route. Yeah, man. That I was telling you about, you yeah. know, that route. Um, so that's like, I think that route will be about 70 miles. And I've I've, I've ran all the pieces of that route. But never linked But it. I've never linked the whole thing up. So maybe, maybe like, I don't know, next month or something. Maybe yeah. we can go run that. Oh, yeah. And get that GPX file squared away. Yep. That way yeah. we can do do a little unofficial event around that invite some other folks out to see a good old north northwest georgia yeah totally man <laughs> yeah i'm down yeah so that's how we started our day and then we went from there and uh ate some good chow then we went up and did a couple of rounds in the sauna and then went back to the cold tub and then back to the sauna and then back to the cold tub then back to the sauna and you know Again, that that stuff is so... So if y'all notice on social media, I don't ever post videos of myself getting into the cold tub. <laughs> like, but the truth of the matter is, this is pretty legit training. Yeah, I mean, what's your perspective on it after what we did today? So I've done ice baths before for like three minutes or so. Um but what we did today was so much, so different. It's so, <laughs> we get into this sauna and it's what, 195 degrees? 195, yeah. Yeah. And it just takes your breath away. For one, there's a huge view, uh, a beautiful view. And uh, yeah, but it, the view goes away, <laughs> away in a few minutes when I start sweating. Uh, but you were talking about the con- the run going by fast, right? Because the conversation, I rem- the only times I really remember of the sauna is when we weren't talking. And you could probably tell when it would get hard, I'd talk about something emotional or deep or something, you know what I mean? To keep me not engaged. Uh, yeah. But then going into the cold plunge is just, I don't know, coming, you get into the cold plunge and it's such relief from the heat, but then immediately my breath's taken away and yeah. you, you have to work to stay in it. 
<laughs> and I'm sitting here, <sighs> okay, this is, <laughs> I'm in the pool with Chad right here. I can't get out. <laughs> yeah. And then, so you're here. And then, so uh, yeah, I got in, uh, up to my shoulders. You were like, if you go to your neck, it's easier. And I, I just couldn't, I was sitting down, but I couldn't untense my body yep. to, to, to let it go. And then, so I was determined the second time I was going to get at least as deep as I could. And, uh, yeah, but when you get out, so when you get out of the cold plunge after being in the 195 degree sauna for 15 minutes, cold plunge for two, it's like you're hit with this type of euphoria that I honestly can't explain. I was using clips from movies to try to explain to Chad how I was feeling, but it was like you hypersensitive to everything, to the grass, to the, like I felt grounded to the floor. We were barefooted, standing in dirt and. I could hear the birds and more than anything, I just, I wanted to stop talking. I wanted to be quiet and sit in that. So the second time we got out, I didn't say, I was like, I'm not saying anything. I'm mm -hmm. just going to sit in this. And it was 10 times, 10 times more intensified. You know, I felt like I was vibrating. Yeah. But yeah, man. So, but to, to, to hit on the mental fortitude aspect, <laughs> when we were sitting in the sauna, yeah, I, uh, the first time when you said there's four minutes left, when you said that, I, I assumed there was maybe a minute left or something. When you said there was four, I, I, again, I was like, I was, like you said, my body was screaming to go out that door. But again, yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting out the, I would have stayed in there until I died just because of pride today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you have to sit in it. And what did we both end up doing? Not talking and breathing. Yep. We didn't even talk when it got rough. We just started breathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I so I get the same. I'm I'm it's really cool to have this conversation because um as much as I hate to admit I, I do sauna and cold plunge, but it, it that's I get the same feeling. And when you get out, like I don't need Dr. Huberman to mm -hmm. tell me that this is doing something to me physiologically because I have the same exact reaction when I get out. I see colors differently, like the green leaves and stuff, and even the bark on the trees and the sky. I see colors differently. I can hear all of a sudden, like, you you don't realize how much we're out here walking around all day. And even people like me and Justin, we spend a lot of time out in the wilderness by ourselves where it's quiet, no one else is around. But, but you don't realize how much you're actually not picking up on. Yeah. And for some reason, when you get out of there, all of a sudden you start hearing like there's like 10 different birds around you all mm -hmm. making all these different sounds. And and uh, I don't know what it does. I don't I personally um, don't do drugs uh, <laughs> like some like some of your other favorite podcast hosts. <laughs> but this is like a really. I think healthy and natural way to somehow reset your senses yeah. and get to this pretty awesome place. And then I don't know your opinion on it or not, but as it transfers into you're a coach and we're going to talk more about who Justin is in a minute, but you know, I don't hear a lot of people advocating for just the, the mental toughness aspect of what everybody advocates for the physical benefit 
yeah. of sauna and cold. Like, yeah, it's doing this for your body and it's helping you create this brown fat and the sauna's, you know, increasing your your growth hormone and all this stuff, right? But nobody is really talking about how does the repetitions, daily repetitions in those two environments, extreme heat and extreme cold, how is that impacting your ability to really bring your mind into, into subjection during a 200-mile race? Yeah. Like, I called it earlier today, your microdosing um, mental toughness. Yep. It's like you're microdosing this um, extreme extreme discomfort for a very short period of time and it's something that it doesn't require four or five or six hours like a long run would yep. to really get into that place i don't know what's your perspective on that do you think there's a benefit there like would could you buy into that yeah so you could take away any scientific physiological adaptation that comes that from doing that or any type of reduce of inflammation take all that out and just focus on the fact that you're forcing your body to do something so unnatural and so uncomfortable that you have to like i had to gain control of my breath i felt like i was gonna have a panic attack yeah and <sighs> there and i'm convinced at least for myself i i'm one of those guys that train under the like the the idea that the more I hurt in training, the more uh, physical capable, the more capable I would be to achieve this effort I'm going after. Yeah, the more adaptation yes. it's going to create, right? Yeah, so I'm like, I'm going to go do heat training, but I'm going to add a ruck in and I'm going to suffocate myself with this with a mask. No, I'm not going to do that all the time, but I'm going to go hurt really bad. Prior to doing this sauna and stuff, that was the worst that I've hurt in a long time, going out rucking with a sauna suit on and a uh, mask on my face and all that. Um, but this did that again, again, without the sauna suit, without the hour long rucks, uh, without the ruck itself, I was just uncomfortable And the, the cold plunge was two minutes and that mm -hmm. felt like 10 years, mm -hmm. you know? And it's all, it's almost more difficult to sit with it, you know, versus like, I saw you doing that the other day. And, and by the way, the other advantage of the the cold and the heat is you can do it in your backyard and your neighbors don't look at you like yeah. you're insane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I saw you doing that the other day with the freaking, the whole mop suit on yeah. and the gas mask. Yeah. And, and like, um, so even, even in the midst of that, you still have this activity 100%. that can distract you with the activity is the, the rucking, the moving, right? One foot yeah. in front of the other. And so you can kind of, I guess in a sense, be distracted by the activity of it but with this that we just did you just have to sit in it man you're 100 so i started on the elliptical in that mop suit but that was too i was sitting in it too much mm -hmm. so i was like i'm going outside yeah yeah so you you're 100 right things yeah. and yeah i get that man i get that no i'm all for it i'm all for it yeah <clears throat> well all right so justin hamilton there's a there's a lot of things about Justin Hamilton that I just pretty much just learned today. I I knew he was a unique individual. I, I've I told him that 
although we've never really spent any time together, we don't really know, haven't known each other until just today, other than what we've seen of each other um, on social media and stuff. I've always been, uh, in a sense, intrigued or captivated by him. And I've been watching you, Justin, for a few years now. And one of the things that has really drawn me to you is how consistent you've been over the last few years. Like, you haven't changed your message. You haven't changed who you are. You haven't changed what your mission is. You haven't changed any of that. You've just, you just have kept showing up as Justin Hamilton for this, you know, pretty long period of time. And you don't see that a lot, man, especially in, in our sport and ultra running. Uh, you see a lot of people that come on, on the scene, right. And they're hot and they're, they're all motivated and they might even do well for a little while, Yeah. but you watch these people and all of a sudden, you know, after about a year or so, you're like, where did this cat go? Yeah. Fizz out. Yeah. They don't have any, they, they don't have any consistency, man. So I've always been intrigued by Justin. I haven't known a lot about who he is actually as a human being outside of his, his athletic endeavors until today and so there's a lot to this dude man um he's been through a lot of things he served our country in the united states army spent some time in special forces selection um was a police officer was a homicide investigator um has really come on the scene in in the ultra running arena over the last couple of years he's done some big things uh there's a whole lot, a whole lot more than just those are those are the the big the big kind of major things that I've learned about Justin today um, in terms of what he's done and where he's been. But there's a whole lot more, obviously, to the story than that. But I guess the thing that connects me and you, I guess, the most that makes our relationship unique is the Midstate Mile. Yeah, and for those of you guys that don't know about this race, <clears throat> it's a little race out in Tennessee. It'll actually it's coming up here in just a few weeks, I think. It's yeah. a little race out in Tennessee that was started by John and Becca Jones on their family farm, and they started this race in 2020 when all the other races had shut down, and all the runners. All of runners like us, like we didn't have any outlet. And a lot of people got in a really bad way yeah. in 2020. And John and Becca stepped out on a limb. They went out and cleaned this old fire road up on their family property. And they said, well, we're going to have a backyard ultra here, a last man standing race. And so they created this really iconic yeah. loop out there. They call it the murder mile. It's a one, is it 1.1 miles? 1.1 miles. And it's got two really, really gnarly, steep climbs and descents. It's pretty much a big climb, a big descent, a big climb, a big descent. And then you're back in the start, start, finish corral. And so you have 20 minutes to complete that loop. About in 2020, I don't know how many runners we started with, 60, 60 runners or so, but... 
again, the spirit behind that race has always really been special to me because they went out on a limb and created this event because there was nothing else happening. And I think they knew like, man, runners need a place to come and people actually need to be together. And in spite of all of the fear and the craziness that was going on, they said, well, we're going to open this up to people. Um, And that was the spirit of the event, right? And it ended up becoming really special. The first year I went out there and uh, I won the first year. It was a really cool finish. The, the finish, the, the win was made cool by the guy that I ended up racing against, Greg Armstrong. Yeah. And that's what made that whole, that's what brought, that's what made that race impact so many people. It wasn't the fact that I, that I won. It was the fact that that clip where Greg Armstrong, him and I have been battling it out for, I guess, when the clip was taken around 28 hours straight. And Greg comes across the finish line, and he he literally, he can't run. Like, yeah. he's, he's all jacked up, man. His body's shutting down, and he collapses across the finish line. Greg is an experienced runner. So when you see a guy like Greg collapsing across the finish line, he's not being dramatic. No, yeah. Like that's not a show. No, it's not a show. And so for I think when people saw that, we were we were live, we were live. Jesse Itzler had my phone, <laughs> I think, and was live on Instagram and captured that. And like a couple thousand people probably now by this point, hundreds of thousands oh, yeah. of people have seen that clip. And then I go on to win the race, and it just become, became a, a real experience that brought people together, that showed people in the midst of all this fear, showed people these humans that were pushing beyond their physical limits, and, and it inspired people at the perfect time. It, that's why people clung to it so yep. much, right? Yep. It's because it was just the perfect time. People needed to see something that wasn't a bunch of fear-mongering mm, yep. stuff. And they saw it, and they clung to it, right? Yeah. It was just perfect timing, man. Well, then the next year I go back, run again, win the race again. Ran a little further that year, right? Now, I'm not going to tell my story right now of why I went, why I didn't go back the third year. But... The second year, I had become, I think, a I had almost become like this figure of the race. Yeah, that people thought that I was just invincible out there, and that nobody could run further than me on that course. And and um, and so the third year, I didn't go. Justin shows up out there, and he runs. And beats my, I had the course record. I had been around that loop more than anybody else in that format yeah. because of the, the first and the second year. And so Justin shows up. He shatters my course record. He wins the race. And now there has to be a rematch. <laughs> You kind of screwed us, man. Yeah. 
don't know why you had to do that. <laughs> I should have just let it go. So now there has to be a rematch. And so that's how, you know, that's the relationship that we share. And I want you to just, I've never, I've never got to hear the story of, of why you got so honed in on mid state. And, um, and I've never got to hear the story of like how that race went for you. Yeah. So I want to talk about that selfishly. Yeah. I want to hear yeah, what man. that experience was like. So I ran Cruel Jewel 100. Um, the second year you went, 2021. Yeah, I ran Cruel Jewel 100 2021. And I was dealing with some knee stuff. Father's Day was approaching. And yeah, I needed a little inspiration, man. I wanted to go watch a race. And so I decided to take my sons to, to Mid-State Mile. We were going to camp out and <clears throat> observe and we didn't know anyone going like no friends it was just i'd saw the greg armstrong clip i'd been following you and i was like all right well this is gonna be fun let's go check this out and in the meantime i had been kind of like following your ultra sign up and trying to like beat your times in races just because you were a man of like similar stature at the time like there was a bunch of these skinny fast guys and then I saw you and Georgia Jewel, and you were a little bit stockier and stuff, and you were still running out front. And so I was like, wow, if I can get close to this guy's time, then I feel like I'm doing pretty good. And uh, and we also live close yeah. to each other, so we're running the same, same races. races. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so I do I, – I never beat any of your times, but <laughs> I still did better had I not tried, you know. And so I'm recovering from Cruel Jewel 100 – and I go go to there for Father's Day to take my sons to watch Mid-State Mile. And immediately, like, I'm captivated by just, like, the sense of family there. That's just, like, this huge sense of family at the race. Everyone was talking. Yeah, there was a little bit of pre-race nerves, it looked like. But people were helping each other set up their tents. And it just looked fun. And so, um, and I knew you had won the year before. I was interested in the race for myself, and so I wanted to spectate. And I watched it, and as I watched the race, I was just convinced that I could win it. I was convinced that I would found something that was in my wheelhouse, as people say, that I didn't have to run fast, but that I could use this gift that God, I believe God gave me, which is the ability to endure. And I can... <clears throat> help inspire other people who have maybe dealt with trauma in their life or addiction to see that, you know, I was pretty bad and look at me now. I, I want to not look at me now, but look at what has become. Mm -hmm. I gave myself a chance. I allowed God to work in my life and I'm sober now. You know what I mean? That was my, I, I saw that the year before I'm going to win this race and I'm going to tell my story. And I, uh, I trained with that <laughs> training for mid state was, was, was rough. You know, my, we were moving from suburban, you know, Metro Atlanta to the mountains. My wife had quitted her corporate American job and we wanted, we literally were living white collar and we wanted to live in the mountains, blue collar. <laughs> so we made the leap and we moved and my training was iffy, but I was living in, you know, the training Mecca, in my opinion, for mid-state mile. It's just, 
I live at the base of Brasstown Bald. I'm a, yeah. two miles from the Arkaqua Trail, which is rated to be one of the hardest in the state. And I just ran up and down it. Didn't get a lot of miles, but I was running when I could. And in the process of training for Mid-State, I'll, I'll be honest, man, um, I was a really good dad. I was a great person, but I was not being a good husband. I had, and not that... My wife will tell you, she was fueling my fire, man. She was. She was all in for mid-state. Because she had seen, too, that this is this is your playground. You could do good here because you have to be tough here. You don't have to be fast. Yeah. And so she was fueling it, too, man. And we almost all got lost in the mid-state mile training because I was training to go there to beat you. I didn't. I. I they were like, we don't know if Chad Wright's going. And I was like, he's going. In my mind, he's going. I have to train to be able to beat him. And... I didn't know how far that was going to be, how, how far we have to run. I just knew I would have to become one of the toughest individuals that I know in that span of time. And it took a lot from me and it took a lot for my family. And we, uh, with the move just happening, we get to mid state and my wife and I, like we met in the 101st airborne. We were battle buddies as cliche and goofy as that sound is, or that phrase is we were battle buddies in the army we rucked together. We, you know, saw each other at PT and in the, in the suck. And I'm the first time I ever saw her, she was getting off a troop cargo plane from Afghanistan. You know what I mean? We've just, we have this sense of loyalty. You know That's what I mean? That's so awesome, dude. Dude, it's, it's rare. Um, so even though stuff was rough, she was going there to get her husband through this race or her, her partner, her friend, her battle buddy. <laughs> and, yeah, she was hyped up there, dude. She was tell people would come and say, "Hey, you know," because I had a picture um, when I was in the police force. We lost our our brother Edgar, and I had his picture of the tent. So people would come by and look, and it had stuff written on it. And then they'd introduce herself, and my wife would be like, "Hi, I'm uh, the wife of the winner." <laughs> and the race hadn't started yet. <laughs> That's pretty epic. Yeah, man. so she was talking. She's just how much she believed in me, and. Uh, so, yeah, so we get there, and when I showed up to Mid-State, in my mind, I, I'm honest, I was looking around for you, even though they were pretty sure you weren't coming. I was still looking around for you up until the minute they blew the whistle because of that that stigma that you said you kind of, you had a target on your back. Um, not a bad one, you know, people just, you were the man to beat. You were the unbeatable guy out there. And when you didn't show up, Dude, my shoulders dropped, and I was like, I'm going to win this race. Mm. And I say that because um, I felt like that I felt like that to win mid-state mile, you needed a combination of a couple things, and that was the physical ability, meaning you had to have put in the work, not a month out, two months out, but a while out. And I had trained for a year, and I also held a will, a will to win. Not only that, but so I, key. dude, I was there for purpose. Yeah. And I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to win to help people. I wanted to win so people would look at me and be like, hey, you got anything to say? And I could say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was there. And when it got hard, dude, I said so the first five hours of Mid-State were great. We were running on adrenaline. There was some people there that were like, yeah, Ultra Dad's done some training. He's, he's definitely a top contender. But then five hours in, I just start puking. And Tim Douglas was crewing me. 
my wife was running to get something from Publix or somewhere. And I remember Tim was like, hey, how you feeling? And I was like, not good, bro. It's my stomach. And he was like, this That's is early. Too, yeah, man. five hours in. Real early. And so I'm running around and I start puking. And all I can think of is this is a slow enough pace to triage myself. Uh, so switch to just water. And then so I switched to just water and salt tabs until I could, you know, at least stop puking stuff up. I would still dry heave. And, dude, people were passing me like, are you okay, dude? You're going to get dehydrated. You're going to get, like, much less win the race. And uh, <laughs> what do you think? Was it the heat that, that yeah, was called? I was it? not heat trained at all. Okay. So I built this big, crazy heat chamber in my basement. And basically, I didn't heat train. Um because life was getting hard leading up to the race with my marriage and stuff. And <clears throat> that is the one part of training where I, I failed at for midstay. I didn't heat train at all. I, one day I made some big crazy heat training event to show Aaron, Dana, Eric, and Doug Moore and everyone that I was tra training, mm -hmm. but I really didn't. And so, yeah, I think I just got zapped. I think when I was drinking all, I was drinking tailwind for five hours. I, just like if you don't get enough sodium, if you overdo it, you'll make your you'll get GI distress. Oh yeah, I think I was overdoing it. Um, yeah. And so when I switched to just water, I gave myself some relief. And so, ten hours went by before I remember feeling okay. And I remember Luke Bolchweiler <laughs> passes me within that ten hours. Sometimes he's like, "Man, Justin, I was really hoping you're going <laughs> to do better." <laughs> And I look at him, I have like puke dripping down. I'm like, yeah, Luke, me too. Just give us some time. Yeah. Luke takes, Luke's a little jackrabbit, man. <laughs> if he's coming by, he's going to be real peppy at 15 hours. Yeah, give him some time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so I was still in the game all the way. I was still going to win the race. I just hadn't convinced anybody in the first 15 yeah. that I was. So you didn't care. You no. didn't care oh, that I, you were puking. No. Yeah. <laughs> I was, it was, it had become a, a product of my environment. I was now puking for however long it was going to take to win this race. But the sun went down, the temperatures cooled, mm -hmm. and my wife came back. What did she have? It was grapes. It was grapes. Ice cold grapes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I started putting those in my mouth. Uh, and then I remember I ate so many grapes. And there was a point where John Cox was like, We need grapes. Does anyone have any grapes? And like to keep me going. Mm -hmm. It was like just me and Eric at that point. But so yeah, I started getting some calories back in on grapes, waking my stomach back up. And then it was just uh, grits pretty much. The whole time my wife was making grits. It was water and grits, water and grits. Mm. And uh, just bland. And yeah. And then it was just, uh, so when we got to the Magnificent Seven or whatever, they started naming the people, the groups of people. And so when there was seven left, it lasted a while. So they named them the Magnificent Seven. That was, that was, before that, I was having fun. Like, I was like, this is cool. Let's see how many we can get to go. But right around the 24-hour mark, I was like, yeah, I don't care who makes it. Like, I'm ready to win now. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. I wanted to beat your course record. But at that point in time, the ultra mind was hitting me. I was like, whatever, as long as I win, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and so I'll get back on that. So all I wanted to do was was when and now i start to feel better in the night i start you know getting calories in me and now i start really eyeballing everyone i'm like dude i'm really gonna i might win this thing my two biggest fears were luke and eric and so i'm running the race and yeah man i start feeling just 
we take this, you do little 20 hour or 20 minute naps. I wake up, I'm looking around. I'm feeling great. Cause when I get done, I got done with fierce dragon 200 last uh, two winters ago at the finish of the, the race finish. They're like the power's out in Blairsville. I live on the top of a mountain. So my wife takes me home and we have to, I had to open up a brand new generator Get my family to get. This is my life. I do this whenever I'm done with races. She hands me the kids. She says, "Let's go." So you can't just collapse, yeah. Yeah. So this is like just like I'm looking around and I'm just thinking, dude, this is my race, man. I'm on the go 24 hours a day, and now it's all about me using that <laughs> on the goness to win a race. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I was watching people wake up and limp and stuff, and I was like, man, I'm feeling good. So then they start to fall off and then it was those those four of us and it was a guy lucas rivard who i didn't you know i was studying the all the entrance and stuff stocking their stravas lucas was never on my radar oh no he won't be he's he tra- he's trained with me basic course and yeah. i think proving grounds too yeah he's a gray man dude i could not believe how well he ran that that day man i was so uh so i was annoyed <laughs> i was like who are you man yeah. you? and i could tell he was hurting so i knew he was gonna fall off joker is tough though dude, dude. but he wouldn't and i was like man <laughs> just fall off bro <laughs> that joker is tough dude no but so eventually he succumbed to the to the race and then it was just me and eric and luke and we talked about some stuff i'll keep to myself uh that went down, but when it came down to it, man, um, I'll, I'm not afraid to say it. It was the resistance and impact that I built running in these North Georgia mountains, running up and down. So it's the the climb. <clears throat> I live one point like seven miles from this climb that is one point four miles with fourteen hundred feet of gain. So it's got a hundred feet of gain for every tenth of the mile that's about as steep as you can get without crawling (laughs) yeah yeah and then so i ran up and down that every single day and uh i you know i would i did my big peak week on there where i just literally just stayed there i lived on that hill and it wasn't fun y'all notice what he's saying he ran up and down yeah that thing that way yeah everybody everybody credits so much the climb it's not the climb Mm mm-hmm you, it's the down. It's like you just hit the resistance to impact, strengthening your your bones and tendons and the bottoms of your feet as you're pounding down those hills, man. Yep. Yeah. And that and so when we would go down that devil's dance, the entire run, people would tell you I was jumping and skipping over it from one. There's a two sides you can run on. I was hopping back and forth, and I was trying to get in people's heads. But I also felt great because of the training. I mean, I had just trained for mid-state better than anybody else did when it comes down to it. And that is why <laughs> the rematch between me and you would be so epic is because at this point in time, no one else has won the race but us. So no one else would be able to train for this race as good as us if you just use that logic. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that you <clears throat> that you – and I don't, I don't dispute the fact that you might have trained better than anybody else there. It, it's interesting to me, though, because, you know, guys like Luke, guys like uh, Eric, guys like Aaron Dana, they got a ton of experience on you on mm-hmm. that course. I mean, yeah. these guys have, have spent days on that course longer than you have. And so I'm betting, 
I'm betting that those guys train hard too. Um, man, I just, I just feel like you just wanted it so bad, man. Like, I don't know if anybody could have beat you. I, I mean, unless obviously there's always the chance that your body just shuts down. Yeah. You know, like happened to Greg or you twist an ankle or something mm-hmm. like if your body shuts down, it shuts down. Yeah. Um, but, but that race to me, I told you on the trail today, what it boils down to is who, who wants it. Yeah. The, the most. Who's going to accept the most crap as normal for a little while. Yeah. So when it, I, I'm interested in the, the time that you and Eric shared together and when it just, so now we're down, do you remember around about how many hours it was before it just came down to you, you and him? We ran together. Luke didn't break the record. I think Eric and I ran together for three or four hours. Okay. It wasn't too long. Okay. Well, three or four hours. I, yeah. Three or four hours is a long time, but it doesn't seem long when you've been running for what now at this point? 30? Yeah. How many, how many hours did you guys run? 40. 40 hours. Okay. So how was... Eric's such a cool guy, man. Eric went into... I didn't know who he was. <laughs> he... But I mean... I knew... When I, when I say I don't know who he was... I knew Eric as this goofy, fun-loving dude, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, and it, he was there to win, and he was winning, you know? I mean, he had been there, like you said, a bunch of times. Since year one. He's yeah. been there since And year now one. he's this close. And then so, yeah, we were definitely competitive. We did speak a little bit, and we talked about, like, how there was no way out other than to just both push until something catastrophic happens to one of us because, um, yeah, <laughs> we were just like, we just keep running until one of us. So were y'all running a lot together or were you no. going out in front of him? Or? No. So there was a period about five or six loops before we stopped. And this is how crazy this race is. Eric almost had it. <laughs> Five or six loops before we stopped, we had broken your course record. Remember, that's uh, earlier, all I wanted to do was win. I yeah. didn't care about the course record. Now we'd broken your course record, and I didn't care about winning anymore. I was like, whatever, I'm cool enough. <laughs> I broke his record. I get that, man. <laughs> and it, we had done the first climb. We start the, this loop. We do the first climb, and Eric pulls away. Eric was good at climbing. He was way better than me um, then. I don't know about now, but... So he's pulled away, and I remember putting my hand, I had my trekking poles out, which meant stuff was crappy because I usually don't touch them. And I had my head in between my trekking poles hanging down, and I was letting the clock run out, man. I was going to quit out there. And uh, I literally, I thought, I saw something shiny I thought in the woods. I thought of Edgar, but I thought about my wife. I said, dude, she's out there telling everyone you're going to win. She believes you're going to win you're i knew it was going on at home with our marriage i was like dude you have for, for nothing else you got to go run to your wife and tell her you feel like quitting yeah and so i ran to her and i walk up to her and i say baby i'm degrading and she looked over and she looked at she looked at eric looked at me and she said he is too keep going and then i was like all right i'm in this thing she's still in it i'm in it i was kind of feeling her out and she was not having anything other than go back out there and then I was, at that point in time, I was ready to go f- again. I had a third, fourth wind. 
And I noticed Eric started dealing with some physical stuff. He started falling back on the climbs and stuff. And then I just I pretty much just started like three loops out. I knew I was going to win, man. And I started getting like super emotional, dude. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, we, <laughs> we come around and uh, he doesn't make it. Yeah. And, uh, isn't that, um, I, I don't know if, if everybody thinks like me, but in, in, in this type of format, it is, especially when it gets down to just you and that one other dude, like you have so much respect for yeah. that other dude because you're the only one there that can feel everything also that he's been through so yeah. like that's one thing <clears throat> about this cocodona race i did it's like my perspective on that event shifted because i did it and now i look at everybody that that just finishes that race and i respect them if yeah. they just finish <laughs> because now like before i had actually done the race i would only look at maybe like the top three or four people yep. and i'm just assuming everybody else that finishes well they just sandbagged it <laughs> well, well in mid-state mile it's the same way when it comes down to you and one other dude like you can appreciate everything that he's been through because you're the only other person there who has been through everything that he has also been through. So he or she, uh, whoever it is, the two people that are left. Yeah. And so uh, you have this deep respect for this other human being, whether you like them or not, whether you like their personality, whether you, whoever they are, that their political belief, all that crap goes out the window and you have this deep respect for this person. But also, when you start to see a little chink in their armor, yep. it's really weird because, like, it's like blood in the water, man. It's yeah, like, man. all right, yep, you know, and and you kind of lock on to that, and 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 you're always you're sitting here think, and I think what it does is you're sitting here thinking about how bad you're hurting and it's really easy to look at that other dude and think there's no way he feels as bad as I feel yeah, right almost now. Always. Yeah. But then when they show some outward sign of it, yeah, you're like it just gives a whole it gives you a whole nother boost. Like the when you're doing something like this, the more that you can hide yeah. how you're feeling from other people. Like, I think of you going through that time puking and stuff. Like, you can't hide that, dude. No, man. But if you are hurting really bad, if you can just hide that. Yeah. And if you've got a limp, yeah. limp when no one else can see you yeah. limping. But yeah. when people can see you or that one other dude that you're racing against at this point, when they're able to actually see you, don't let them see you limp no, you because up. you're going to fuel them, man. And yep. so, you know, I could... How did it feel when you started to see Eric with that limp? Because it's such a, it's such a, like, a, it's such opposing feelings. I was going to say I felt guilty. It, it, they're rubbing up against each yeah, other. I felt guilty. Okay. I felt like I had done something, like, I don't know. Now that I saw the end in, in sight, I felt like, I don't know, it wasn't enough or, or I don't, I don't know. Yeah. yeah I definitely felt weird. there, dude. <laughs> it really is. And so... When I saw Eric sitting in the chair when I came back, I was legitimately sad for him because I knew. So he, on the loop that he quit, did he go out and then turn around and come back? No. So 
I came in. How does that happen? When I remember him sitting in a chair, the moment I remember being sad about is when I did my final loop yeah. to win. And I came in and he was sitting down um, and I shook his hand. <clears throat> no. Okay. So he was out on course, I believe. They blew the whistle and they're like, he ain't here. Go, Justin. Okay. And I go and I come back and he's sitting down. Gotcha. And I was like, I just, I knew how he had worked hard, dude. He really had. And he's a great guy. So I was like, I just felt bad. You know what I mean? I felt like I'd taken it from him. I, for some reason, I felt like I cheated him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I felt guilty and I don't know why. Yeah. There's like, yeah, in that moment, I can imagine there's, there's some feeling like, man, maybe I could have just said something to him and he would have got another loop in like maybe i could have encouraged him a little bit maybe i could have ran that loop with him i shouldn't have and, prayed on him so much when i saw him limping yeah <laughs> yeah exactly for sure uh well talk to me about that last loop and then we're gonna change change directions with the conversation but because for you guys that don't know with this race even once you become the last person that's left and everyone else has quit in order to win the race, you then have to go out and do another loop by yourself within the allotted time frame. And if you can't do that, even though everyone else has quit, if you don't do that last loop by yourself, then nobody wins the race yeah. and there's no winner. So talk to me about that last loop because me and you are the only three people who have ever ran yeah. loops by, or no, not, we've, Three total loops yeah. have been ran out there. And we're the, we're only, the only two people who have ever ran loop a loop out there by ourselves. So yeah, so I come around and uh, at that point in time, most of my stuff with mid state, yes, I was in physical agony with my gut. I didn't f experience a whole lot of joint pain and stuff. Um, my, I wanted to stop. I just was done. I was mentally getting weak. Um, but now that I had what, dude, I was good to go. I was hyped up. I was like, I just did this. Holy crap. And then, so I grab Edgar's picture off of this big thing I had for him there. And I take his picture with me and I'm like, well, let's do this, bro. <laughs> and then I ran around and, uh, I stopped right before little Creek when you first start. And I you know, yelled Edgar, we did it. And I took off, dude, I was like in tears. And then I ran by all the signs. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember, but in the group chat prior to the race, me and you were bantered like one or two things back and forth. And you said, you know, you can't beat me, right? Yeah. So someone put one that sign up and it said, you know, you can't beat me, right? Because we thought you were coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I grabbed, uh, I grabbed that sign and I stared signs for Edgar and John, my buddy, John Parker, he started this thing where he, he had a sign out there and he hung a marker on it and we were supposed to tally each time. And I remember tallying once and being like, dude, I'm not tallying this thing. I'm trying to win this race. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so I snagged that, uh, for him, but yeah, I snagged all the signs, rolled them up and just took off, man. And I was just like trying to, I was envisioning the finish line, but I was also like, it was so overwhelming, man. I... I was just high on the on the whole thing, on the chance to get back and to get a little bit of recognition so I could start telling my story, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh yeah. You you know what happened after I went home and then like it wasn't all <laughs> rainbows and kittens life hit and then it was time to really <laughs> do work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Well, I've never been able to tell you, but man, congratulations. 40 hours on on that course. I've done, I think the second year I did 38 hours. I think yeah. that's what we did. So 40 hours. Um, I don't know what 40 hours feels like, but I know what 38 hours feels like. <laughs> feels a lot like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you straight up, man, like there's there that's impressive dude that is impressive and the listeners can't understand how impressive that is like they they don't get it there's people that show up to this race every single year that i've been out there yeah and they have these these fanciful ideas that they're going to go out there and run for 200 miles or or they're going to go out there and run for 72 hours or they have like they believe that i mean i've literally seen people make posts that i'm running 200 miles at mid-state mile this year and i'm like man you don't understand you just the listeners don't understand because of the difficulty of that track 40 hours, yes, there are other races where people have ran 60 hours, 70 hours. I mean, it took me 103 hours to finish Cocodona, which, by the way, I'm not proud of. But, but like, it's because of that course, and that's what normal ultra runners who have never been to that specific race, I don't think even they can appreciate what 40 hours on that course actually is. You just have to... You have to experience it. Yeah. So that's super impressive, man. I mean, I'm so, I'm so thankful that you, uh, that you did, that you did that because, again, it gives us now, Lord willing, an epic opportunity to go out and just put on a, just put on a freaking show. Yeah, man. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and, and not for our sakes, but to put on a show. That's going to be fun for people to watch. That's going to inspire other people. That's going to make people want to get up off the freaking couch and go out and see maybe one day how many loops they can do at Mid-State Mile. Or maybe it's just going out and and doing a hike for the first time in in 10 years, uh, whatever it is. Yeah, man. Um, I can't wait for that day to come and I can't wait. And I hope we both have perfect days yeah, man. when it does come. It's because be a long day. <laughs> that's another thing about, about it is you look at a guy like Eric and he has the physical ability. Obviously he's, he proved that when he ran with you, Yeah. but like the first year he was pretty good. The second year he was it totally just, you know, didn't go far at all. And then he comes. So you, you two things, a few things have to line up yeah. for it to be, you know, what you hope it's going to be. You have to put in the work. You have to want it really, really bad. Yep. And then you have to have the perfect day. I say the perfect day. You didn't have the perfect day, but you you manage things well yeah. enough to recover. You're gonna have you're gonna have things pop up. Yeah. You're gonna have blisters. You're gonna have stomach distress. You're gonna have heat and all this stuff, right? But but you have to manage those things as a professional yeah. to make it what is the perfect day. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. It just whatever starts happening, that's just, 
that's now <laughs> what you're going to do. That is now <laughs> what that's your environment. That's right. I'm puking. That's just part of this race. That stinks. When I ran Fierce Dragon 200, uh, by mile 12, I knew how, I don't know why, but I had some serious IT band issue and I did, <clears throat> I ended up having to walk the entire race and, uh, yeah, I, I, I there, I don't know, man. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. What, what are you more proud of your, um, I, I mean, I hate to use the word proud of, but what, what fulfilled you more? Finishing the the Fierce Dragon two hundred, which is a a grassroots, <laughs> gritty, no accolades whatsoever. So, w- what fulfilled you more, finishing that or 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 winning Mid State? Oh man, yeah, those are two totally different things. Because I've heard you bring that up a few times. Fierce Dragon was my. I was going out there to break the course record by over a day. That was my goal. And I went out there and ended up having to walk it and barely finished it. So that was a turning point for me as an ultra runner. Uh, you can probably relate with Cocodona. Um, I had big hopes. And early, and at least halfway through the race, I knew that this was going to become a survival game instead of a racing game. I, I was going to have to survive this for the 120-hour time limit or I wasn't going to make it. Those were the... You know what I mean? The that changes your decision-making process and changes your yeah everything about the way you think. Yeah. Yeah, man. So uh, it was ve- it was <laughs> it was very humbling, dude. Um, so where where did you, which one did you grow more from the race itself? Mid-state mile. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's. As far as myself as a human being, um, mid-state mile for sure. Okay. Yeah. Because I had to, when I started puking, I, dude, I impressed myself when I was done with the race. I was like, how did, how did you go from that dude at five hours to 15 hours? You, from hour five to hour 15, I was neck, I thought I was going to like die. That's how hot I felt, how sick I felt. I was clammy for 10 hours straight. Mm Mm-hmm. And I got out of it, and I was just simply amazed. Not, I guess I was impressed with myself, but it's just the human body and, like, what we can overcome. And, yeah, man, I was, I was, yeah, I grew a lot from Mid-State as far as uh, experience as an ultra runner because I just found that I can, I can move in a lot of pain, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fierce yeah. Dragon was more... It was, a, I got lots of sleep, you know, I would do like a 40 mile effort with 12,000 feet of gain and then I'd sleep for four hours and then I'd go do it again, sleep for four hours and I'd had a cabin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was not very happy with how I conducted Fierce Dragon. If I, when I was going back the I was signed up to go back this winter and I wasn't going to bring, I didn't have a cabin. I didn't have a crew vehicle. I had uh, the aid stations and I was going to run back and forth and try to do it in 72 hours. And so there was a lot of mistakes with Fierce Dragon. Um, And it was also a dark time in my life, man. Mm -hmm. Like for me and my wife coming out of Fierce Dragon, you talked about like um, that post performance type of kind of darkness. Yeah. That hit me hard after Fierce Dragon. Um, and it wasn't the same. Like when I came home from Mid State Mile, there was that post-performance darkness in the form of 
my wife and I were getting divorced. Yeah. So I had work to do. You know what I mean? I had to get to work. After Fierce Dragon, I just came home and sat in like house in the mountains for 30 days and didn't run and got fat and pale. And I remember signing up for a 50K to save me. <laughs> I was like, I got to train for something. I signed up for the cold mountain 50K up in North Carolina and it got canceled. So I showed up anyway and just ran up there for like six or seven hours. And and then, yeah, but yeah, man, there's a, there's a lot to be said for the train up for midstay and what happened after for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. I think a lot of the... I. Cause I, I'll, I've also grown a lot as a runner through that event. And I think a, another reason you grow so much from that event is because you go, you go, you go through all the highs and lows that you, that you go through at other races, but you, you're exposed. Yeah. So you're under a microscope. Everyone can see it happening like hundreds of people and you have, so that makes those challenging low moments that makes them even more difficult because you can hide them yeah. out on a regular course, yeah. like something like fierce dragon or something like Coca Dona. You know, you got these long stretches where no one sees you, man. Yeah. And you can, you can do and say shameful things and like, yeah, no one sees it, but man, at a, uh, at mid state, you're just completely exposed to everyone can see what you're going through. And dude, so. Tennessee Miles, it's got a lot of the same vibe. Tennessee Mile, uh, the same people put on the same race, but this is like their winter version. And uh, yeah, you're under that same microscope. But it, if for me, if you want to run and win mid-state and you don't do Tennessee Mile the year before, you're doing yourself a disservice. Because I did. I just signed up for it and I went out there and, and I ran for 24 hours on it and got a feel for the course. And got a feel for that. You're under the microscope. You know, mm -hmm. I remember Justin Sheely was out there uh, with the three of seven dudes, and they were on live. Every time I came around, they pointed the thing mm -hmm. at, at us. And so it was a good opportunity to get a taste for that uh, that under the microscope type yeah. of running. Yeah. Shoot, yeah, man. Well, uh, I want to dig in a little bit. I know we, we spent a lot of time on Mid-State, but. We have time. I don't have anything else to, to do today. Nope. So, um, yeah, I wanted to get that out there and just hear from you on that because, yeah, it's special to me. I've never – we've never got to – we've never caught up or, or talked about your experience yeah. out there. Haven't really heard anything else about it. So, it's good, man. It's good to get that out there. And uh, I love it. But I want to talk a little bit about who you are, Justin. And kind of your story, because that's another thing that I don't feel like is out there. Yeah. Uh, at least I haven't seen it or heard it, you know, anywhere before. I see, you know, so I get little, I've gotten little glimpses of it in your posts where you're talking about uh, Edgar. Yeah. And, um, you know, when that anniversary rolls around, yeah. um, I see, I see that. But um, not a lot about, what led you to this point? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I want to have a conversation around that and we can start wherever you want, man. I just want to open up the floor to you. I mean, we can start when you joined the army prior to that. I mean, what's the best place to start with talking about who you are just so people get the opportunity to hear that. 
Yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I can brush on before I joined the Army for sure. So most of my childhood, I always felt this childhood life, <laughs> early adulthood, whatever. I have felt this need for more in whatever capacity that it was, that I was, whatever I was touching, I needed more of it. If it was hot fries, Chester's hot fries, man, I wanted to eat 10 bags of them. If it was alcohol, I wanted to drink it all. After everyone was asleep, I was still up drinking. And I just always wanted more and more from life, man. And it, it turned negative. And, you know, I found myself, uh, before I joined the Army, with my friends and family close around me, uh, helping me, telling me, you know what, you need to change your life or you're, you're going to end up dead um, in prison, in a ditch or something. <clears throat> And then so I did, and uh, I enter the United States Army, man, which is definitely, you know, the best decision that I, have, I, I made as a 20-year-old. Um, I got into the Army, and with the help of my friends and family, I'd entered, I'd entered the Army sober, right? And I was, a, I, I'd started running, I had ran a half marathon prior to joining the Army, and so I get in there, and, and uh, I got a leg up on some of the people in basic that haven't been running, and I see positive things happening in my life because I'm doing good at running. You know what I mean? You could suck at the push-ups in the army, but if you beat everybody in the two-mile run, that's what they're talking about. So it's, the same, it's the same in seal training. It's <laughs> yeah. the same in seal running, training, yeah. man. The four-mile timed run, it's like that's what everybody's looking at. Yep. You barely pass the O course, barely pass the swim, but if your run time sucks, somebody's going to call you out yeah. for it, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, there's parallel there, man. Our, I um, <clears throat> so yeah, I kept up with the running in the army. My first duty station was Fort Benning, and I met up with guys who would come up and run in Pine Mountain um, every weekend and stuff. And I met some ultra runners, and I kind of like got a glimpse of that. And so, what year would this would this? That was have been? 2013. Yeah, 2013. Okay. I'm in bidding, running around the trails, Pine Mountain, and I run my first 50K, my first ultra actually back then, and it's one of you guys, I think, Mount Chiha 50K. Yeah. Yep, y'all know about that one. And, you know, just did average. I got like 40th place, but I was just a young stud in the Army. Like, I did no training. Mm -hmm. And then that was the last ultra I ever did. And then, <laughs> ever, like, last ultra I did for a long time. And then, so, uh, I... You know, did you like the army? Like, were you excelling as a oh, soldier? Dude, I loved it. I was a super okay. soldier. Yeah, I was uh, sober, showing up. You know, I would show up to formation, have already ran five miles, and like the others. There was people that liked me, but there was also people that, like didn't like me because it's like, yeah, here's Mister Captain America. Come on, dude, we're mechanics. You're making us look bad here. And, yeah, I get that. And then, so I remember I was coming out of the. Uh, <clears throat> I'd I'd watched a bunch of the surviving the cut videos before joining the army and got like kind of like drawn into the special operations stuff and i knew the easiest route was through uh, sf selection so i went to special forces selection just naive and hoping i could do it and i ended up uh i actually made it through the first week which surprised me because it was a lot of physical uh activity and then we got into the land nav and i ended up <laughs> i made a map case myself and it ended up breaking off my neck, and I lost my map. And, yeah, I ended up not doing – I ended up getting uh, 
not voluntary withdrawal, but I just, they sent me home. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, man, that sucked. And that's so, but that's like one of the points where probably a lot of, I've heard a lot of dudes get dropped yeah. from that land nav it's portion really, of that yeah, training. really hard. Really, Super really hard. intensive, isn't it? Yeah, you got about a 50-pound ruck, and you're, dude, yeah, <laughs> moving like six miles, you know, at a time, and some of the long ones. And, and there's no room for air. No. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you're out there. So at nighttime, the craziest thing about that land nav to me is at nighttime, you can't use any lights at all, and you can't walk on any established trail or road. Mm-hmm. And you can't walk within 100 yards of any of those. <laughs> and so you have to be aware where the roads are. And you don't have nods. You know. You, the only thing you're looking at is the glow of the north on your compass lining up with the glow of your azimuth. Yep. And you literally look at that and you walk and boom, and you run into something. And then you look up and you're like, what can I see that I can walk to? Or I'll walk to that tree. And you just do that for two days straight. And yeah, so I didn't make it. And then so I went home and I was like, all right, well... I'm getting, uh, I got orders to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I was like, all right, well, I'll get there and I'll go from there again, because I wasn't, I wasn't done. I was going to go Special Forces. I wanted a Green Beret bad, and <clears throat> so I started training like crazy, because now I knew what you needed. They, I saw the butt kicking of the first week, mm-hmm. and now I know that I knew what to train for. And so I started rucking like crazy. The same stuff I do in ultra running today. I started overreaching. I was like, okay, 50 pound ruck, let's make it 80. <laughs> and yep. I started training just crazy. And right before I uh, ETS'd, no, PCS'd, wait, which one? Yeah, permanent change of station, whichever one. <laughs> right before I left, I started like getting into my head about my alcoholism. You know what I mean? I, cause I had my wife, my family had helped me get sober before the army. And then I started getting into my head, like, you know, am I still an alcoholic? I've been in the army. I got all this mental fortitude from all this training I'm doing. I can drink, right? And then so I want to. part of an organization that all, everyone drink, drinks. Drinking is a huge part of, yeah. of any organization within the U.S. military. Absolutely. It's, a, it's the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I can, I can drink, you know what I mean? So I go over to my sergeant's house. <laughs> He'll never hear this. I go over to my sergeant's house and he gives me a beer and I'm like, oh, that was nice. Uh, can I have another one? And so I drink three beers at his house. First time drinking in three years. And I'm like, all right, hey, can I have a couple to take home? And he's like, yeah. And he gives me two beers to take home. I go to my barracks. I drink those two. I call a taxi. Take me to the shop at that on Benning at the time you could buy alcohol 24 hours a day. I go and buy uh, a 12 pack and go back to my room and clear it out. And it's like four in the morning and I'm sitting wired at my desk. Like I just drank, I don't know, off the top of my head, it was like 17 beers or something like that. And first time drinking in three years and I'm like wired. And I was like, oh man, I'm definitely still an alcoholic. <laughs> and uh, so I stopped. I went back, I went to an AA meeting, got a chip, and then stopped drinking for a year. PCS to Campbell, and I meet my buddies there, my new buddies in the barracks, and they're all drinkers, and they're all super in shape, and we're just getting after it, drinking, lifting, running, like seriously, like puking up (laughs) pre-workout, like just going at it, and 
training for SF and there was a couple other guys in the unit that I got that I went to that were training. So then we got to split off during PT and do our own stuff. And so we were training and drinking like crazy. And we, I go and, uh, dude, I ended up doing really good the second time. Um, now had you met your wife yet at this point? No. Okay. So she was in our friend group, but she was deployed. We were on, we were in the rear detachment. I PCS while they were deployed and so we were in the rear D, and she was coming home, and everyone talked about her. Sergeant Lewis, her last name was Lewis at the time. Sergeant Lewis, Sergeant Lewis, she's she's crazy, she's hard, she's she's awesome. Like they talked about her like she was amazing, but scary. And I was a E four, so sergeants met something that I was scared of them at the time. You know what I mean? Sergeant E six. She was at the time she was an E five. E five. Okay. And so, yeah, if she comes home, I didn't mean to sidetrack you by the no. way. No, I just was wondering. No, to no, get no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, well, where was I then? You were going back. <laughs> you said you you were you got to Fort Campbell, I think. You yeah, kind of hanging out with your buddies. Yeah, and then you're going back yeah. into Special Forces selection exactly. for the second time. Yeah, I go to uh, selection again, but this time I go like, and all the guys are asking. I'm a mechanic, and these dudes with Ranger tabs and in, in the formation are all asking me questions because I'd been there. They haven't. Officers are talking to me like I'm somebody. And I was like, oh, this is definitely where I belong. You know what I mean? And I excelled through SF selection the second time just because I was physically prepared. I knew what to train for. When it got to the land nav, I was running. Like, I, so you can get eight possible points. You need five to pass. I got all eight. And it's pretty cool. Like, it's for people who've gone through F- SFAS, getting all eight points is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and it was essentially like I was going through just first time go on everything. I got to the team week. Got on two great teams. You know, you're building these ridiculous apparatuses to get 500-gallon barrels (laughs) across, like, 20-mile stretches. And, yeah, it went great. I got selected. I wanted to be an engineer sergeant, uh, which is the explosives and logistics guy. And that's what I got. And it was just all great. And uh, I came home, and I met my wife when she got – so her – she was the last plane to come in. They were like, Sergeant Lewis is coming in. We're all drunk at the barracks. And I'm like, let's go. And uh, we go to the hangar. She comes in, and I just remember her laughing, like, in formation. And it was so ungodly loud. Dude, it was loud. <laughs> and I looked at her, and I was like, I love that lady. Mm. <laughs> she is. She doesn't care about anybody. She's just laughing. She's being her. And, you know, that was the start of our friendship. We became best friends, man. And... So we, I had been select, I got selected. She was on orders to go to New Mexico as a recruiter. We were falling in love more and more by the day. And we were getting split up by the military. I was going to airborne school and then going to Bragg to the warfare school. And she was going to New Mexico. So we were like, let's get married. Like we loved each other enough. We knew that. And we got married. And shortly after found out Gabriel, uh, she was pregnant with Gabriel and we ended up in uh, in Bragg, man, and yeah, and I'm in the <laughs> Special Forces Qualification Course, the thing I'd fought for a year to get into. Yeah, yeah, and I think the interest, one of the interesting things you shared with me earlier that, like, a credit, just to give your, just, I've never met your wife, but to, I, she just seems like such an amazing person. I can't wait to meet her one day, but you talking about, like, when she she was on this career path yeah and she was like 
Nope, I'm I'm going with Justin. Like, yep. let's follow you. That's buddy. strong, man, dude. Like without hesitation, she. What I knew from Steph from meeting her is she wants an alpha male husband. She wants someone. To, that might have come across the wrong way. She wants someone to take care of her that she believes can take care of her, a protector. And I wanted to be that guy. And she saw me becoming trying to be that guy. So yeah, she was yeah. feeling that fire, man. And yeah, so I'm I'm in the middle of the Q course. I do now the real hard land nav is in the Q course. It's the star course out there and it is that mu- that might be the one I've heard about. Yeah. Man. I've yeah. heard it's brutal, man. Yeah. That's two days of yeah. Yeah, I don't even know, man. <laughs> it was negative 14 with the wind Good gosh. for the 48 hours I was out there. And I was land nav stud. Steph's expecting me to come home the first night. If you go five for five on the first day, you go home. So she sees me not come home. And so what happened is I got road killed. <laughs> I got my first point, doing great was running, was going too fast, wasn't paying attention to the map, and I ended up funneling myself into an intersection. I looked left, and I was like, there's a road I can almost touch. I look right, and there's a road I can almost touch, and I'm like, I'm screwed. And as soon as I said that, a gator and all of its lights turn on, cadre pop out, and they're like, what's your roster number candidate? (laughs) And they said, you're road killed. And this is after the first point on the first day in the freezing cold. And I said, so does that mean I go back to the campsite and wait till tomorrow? And they said, no, continue training. And so I had to train for 24 hours, find points that meant nothing. <laughs> so I would get to a point, they'd be like, great job. And I'm like, yeah, it means nothing. I have to, so now I have to get all five tomorrow or I don't pass. Dang and it, so man. the next day we wake up and now it's a ghost town compared to the first day. Cause everyone was like, I'm getting all my points first day. Yeah. And the pressure's on, right? Yeah, man. And I remember, so I think back on this land nav course and a lot of the ultras I get in are tough times. And I'm like, I made it through that. I'm good. We would get to our points, which is just another student who had failed out at some other point in the course sitting at a campfire around ammo or not ammo cans, water cans. And so I'm, I remember going to one point and I'm like three miles out and I'm stabbing my canteen with my Gerber knife to try to kill the ice so I could sip the water out of it. I'm unsuccessful. And I'm like, okay, when I get there, they're going to have water. I get there and I'm like, hey, dude. And I go f- to walk towards the water. He said, oh, it's all frozen. I said, how about moving it next to the campfire, Sounds dude? Sounds like some Barkley Marathon <laughs> stuff, dude. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, great. And then this guy gets there and he comes up and he's one of my buddies I've been running with. And he's like, Hamilton, do not let me leave without getting water. And I was like, oh, are you low? <laughs> It's frozen. it's frozen. You're not getting any. Holy crap. What a freaking turd sitting at that point, man. Oh. He just screwed you guys. Put it closer to the fire. Yeah. Yeah, so I make it through that craziness, and I get into the portion that's called small unit tactics where you're learning the actual cool stuff, the ambushes, the raids, near ambushes. You're just you're you're getting put through squad leader, team leader, company. You're going through all of them. And so it's the real deal. This is where the studs who are the physical studs kind of, you either make it or you don't. Let's see if you have some brains now. You know what I mean? And I was a mechanic and I was like, dude, this is scary. That was the scary part for me because I was like, how am I going to learn all the stuff these infantry men have been doing forever? And uh, my buddy, Randy, I call him Ranger Rick, my buddy to this day, he 
he teaches uh, Arctic marksmanship over in uh, Alaska <laughs> for the Army right now. But uh, he, he took me under his wing. He was a, a Ranger Tab guy, um, cavalry scout, and he just took me under his wing, and we just did mock drills with little uh, sand tables just over and over and over and over oh. and over. And so I was getting ready, man, and I was going to do it. I was you know, doing everything I needed to get my Green Beret, and then we're two weeks in. Uh, I had lost like 18 pounds because I was such an alcoholic by, before I went into this. Mm -hmm. I had not drank for two weeks. Now I'd lost so much weight, and I'm sitting in a draw, and it's like night, day two out there, and because we would, we would be back at the, at the barracks, like it's like a team room kind of mock, mock team room. We have cots and stuff, but then you'd go out and spend like five days in the woods and we're like on day two and I'm in a draw and it's starting to rain and my buddies are filling up my canteen with swamp water to put iodine in it. That's what we're going to drink. And, uh, I remember I had my, the weapon I had, we had like blank firing adapters on the end. And so you could shoot like real weapons, but with blanks. It was jamming. Every every time it shot, I had to recharge. Oh, yeah. I've been there before. <laughs> so I was like, I was. I remember looking at this, the cadre, like, sorry, this is stupid. And he was like, just keep doing it. The bolt gets so dirty with that BFA on it, man. And you just got to keep char pulling yeah, the charging handle. Useless. That's your only shot. You got a single shot. And we're doing raids and stuff. And I just remember, I was like, no, I'm done. I quit. I'm on. I was imagining driving around in my new Jeep Wrangler that I had back at the house mm -hmm. with the top off, drinking beer. That was what I imagined in that wow, in that man. draw, dude. When I got up, I told people I quit because my wife just had a kid. Not true. I got up because I was thinking about alcohol, man, and I and I was uncomfortable. And I went up to the cadre, and I remember the, my buddy was like, "No, the guy had been training me up." Everyone was like, "You're quitting!" Like it was like, dude, I made jokes about people quitting. Like it was something that I would never do. Mm -hmm. And just like that, I quit. And all that years of work went out. The, you know, went to nowhere. Yeah. And then an alcoholism had nothing to do but grow. And I had God. no direction, man. No direction. I found myself out of the Army within a few months um, on the family care plan. My wife was set to deploy. And for the grace of God, she got out of that deployment. And then fast forward a couple months, my wife's now we're both out of the Army. And... We're talking about what, what we're going to do. And I'm just, I'm dying, dude. I am like drowning in alcoholism. And I, I'm waking up every day just bloated. And I'm like 220 pounds. Just can't run anymore. And I told my wife, I was like, I, can, I, can I join the police department? And she was like, yeah, yes, you can. <laughs> just call back home in Atlanta and ask around there. We'll move back home. That's where I have family. And then so I call. And my tattoos got me disqualified, and DeKalb County picks me up immediately. At the time, I didn't know, but it has the highest murder rate in the state, so they needed bodies. And I was just like, yeah, let's go. And we get to the, the orientation, and there's three other people sitting in the room. And I'm like, this can't be right. And they're like, hey, sorry, but due to budgeting, we have to have this class, and you're it. <laughs> we, we, I guess that was something with the state. They had to have five classes a year or something. And there was only four for this one. And 
So believe it or not, we were the second smallest police academy class in history. The only other smaller was one girl. It happened to the, to one girl one time for six months. She was the only cadet. That one sucked, yeah. dude. We at least had like, they would look at my buddy and not me for a second. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so when we, I walk in there. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, Justin, like in the... Because you're full, you're full bore into addiction at this point, mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. you're just feeding it as much as it wants to eat. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, where did you find, like, where did you find the inspiration to go and like step out of your comfort zone and like go join this police force and make a move to Georgia and like in the midst of that full bore addiction? Like, was it? So you're trying to escape that in some way, or like because. Yeah, geographical change was always always seemed like a at least a little bit of a fix or 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 like it might offer some solace into whatever's happening. Yeah. So yeah, there was a little bit of that. Um but man, I was just I was actually just really good at getting along hurting really bad. And I just accepted that like in the mid state I accepted to puke and I had accepted bloated gross Justin, man. And that was just who I was. I'll, I'll tell this story because I don't want to forget. Before I got sober, <clears throat> I remember looking over at my son who was watching cartoons, my son Gabriel. At this time of the story I'm telling, he was three. And he's watching cartoons and I'm laying on the couch just utterly hungover. I, I can hear the light coming through the blinds. That's how hungover I am. And I look over at him. He's just looking up at the at the TV, and the white of his eyes is so clean and pure, and he, there's just nothing but pureness in this kid. Mm -hmm. And I start crying, and I crawled over to him, and I put my head in his lap, my three-year-old son's lap, and I started, I was just crying, bawling my eyes out. And I, and I, and while I was crying, I realized I wasn't crying because I knew his dad had to change. I was crying because I knew his dad was never going to change, that he had drew the short straw mm. when it came to fathers. And uh, that was a big moment, man, in me. Um, when I tell you that, like, towards the end, I thought of Edgar and my son Gabriel, that was that moment that I thought about. But I don't know, like, <laughs> I honestly... That's brutal, man. Dude, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, honestly, I kept... Operate. I was a shellless human. I was a shell of a human. I was a captainless ship just floating along, yeah, man. Yeah. And just, I was just following this little bit of direction. And to be honest, the police academy, once I got there, it was easy. After going through the military and the SF training and all that, all those schoolhouses, this was, I was, I mean, no offense <laughs> to Cap County Police Academy, but I was like, this is it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, so I just, I made it through there. I drank for like the first three months behind everyone's back. I was living in my grandma's basement in Flowery Branch, Georgia, drinking like a madman, going to the police academy, hungover every day. And had Steph not moved to Georgia? Moved yet, man. Okay. And so now she's coming back. Now I go buy us a house. She sends me off to go buy a house. I buy a house. And now I'm, I'm sitting in this empty house. I'm literally, I remember on the 4th of July... Yeah, on the 4th of July, I was sitting on the roof drinking by myself. My wife was coming home in a week, and I remember thinking, I got to stop drinking before she gets home. <laughs> and then at the same time, the, the instructors, my, my instructor, Instructor Williams, she started asking about my drinking and was like, if you don't stop, this is going to be a problem. I can smell it on you, essentially. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 
So I was like, oh, I got to stop. And I just stopped cold turkey. And I would always just go to AA. And it is what it is. Uh, some people call it a cult. I don't go to AA today. Um, but <laughs> in my opinion, if you want to stop drinking and you go there and you listen to every word they say and you follow every suggestion, you'll remain sober. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I knew that. So I was like, I'm, I just went back to AA. And I would go to AA and I'd go every day and I'd get a sponsor and I'd do what you're supposed to do. So I was able to stay sober because I would leave complete alcoholism. I'd jump right into a program. Mm-hmm. Did and, your wife know? That you were like yep. going to AA anytime. So okay. when, yes. So I had to tell her. I, I broke it to her more softly than hey. For the past so on so long, I've been a closet alcoholic. I was just like she knew I had troubles with it, and yeah. I was like, hey, when you were gone, it kind of ramped up, and I'm just I'm doing this to get it under control, you know. And not the instructors are noticing at school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I get out of the academy. We graduate um, in November. We graduated of 2017. And I go on the road, and it's this three months on, three months off, six months on, a couple months off <laughs> type thing um, for the first year of my policing. I never drank at work. I was always honorable at work. Um, I was a great cop. I wanted, I fought to put myself in the positions to save people and any opportunity when people would drive slow to shots fired or person shot called, I couldn't put my foot to the floor more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was out there to do God's work. So I've thought, and mm-hmm. it was kind of, it's funny because in, in behind the scenes, you know, I'm dying. Um, it was like, it was a, a balance. I was at work. That was getting me my righteous Phil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I could go home and do this demon stuff in the darkness. Well, I think it all ties into how you even started this conversation about how in, in life you always wanted more, right? More, yeah. more, more. You wanted to, to just like, I think the crazy thing is about people who I know personally who have struggled with addiction, like if they, if they can get get clean or even some of them while they're in active addiction they're also excelling extraordinary humans <laughs> yeah and in whatever other aspect of life it is right whether it's fitness whether it's being a police officer whether it's being an entrepreneur because it ties in to this i want more 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 right you wanted to be the dude that was out there on the street that wanted to save more people yeah, 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 than yeah. anybody yeah, else yeah, on the street. So it plays all into who, how you were created, right? Absolutely, yeah. man. It's just like, and it's sad. For, for me, like if I imagine someone else watching me, like just stop drinking, dude, and you're going you're gonna to be okay. If you would just, if Justin would just quit drinking, man, you know? And so here I am out on the road, and I'm doing great as a, as a new cop, and we're pulling everyone over, and we're working in. So there's four precincts in DeKalb County: North, South, East, um, and Tucker Precinct. And out of the four, North Precinct is considered the safest, or like the least violent calls. And that's where I got sent. And where do you think I wanted to get sent? The worst one. Yeah. Well, that's where Edgar and my buddy Habib. So in the police academy, it was me, Edgar Flores, a His, uh, Hispanic American, Habib Ashagban, uh, uh, um. Nai- uh, immigrant from Nigeria wow. and Rania Ramsey, uh, an African-American uh, Atlanta native, you know, 
So the most diverse group of individuals you could ever imagine. Yeah. And we became the biggest family ever. And so we're out on the road. Me and Ramsey get sent to North. Flores and Edgar get sent to South. And we're all like, man, you know, I wanted to go. We wanted to go together, especially mm -hmm. if any of us went to South because it was like South's dangerous. And, you know, we're living our police lives, man. I get home from work and Ramsey calls me and says, Flores was shot in the head and it's not good. And we're cops, you know, in a violent community. We've seen people shot in the head. We know how it ends. It, I've never seen it end good. Every once in a while you have a miracle where someone's a vegetable, but we were, it was just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I hit the ground and I remember my wife coming in and I told her just real fast and she left and got the kids and I called my sergeant because I had to go to work the next day at 6 a.m. So I called my, or I texted my sergeant. I said, what do I do? And no one knew, no one at North Precinct, I think, at the time knew that Edgar was my buddy. Mm -hmm. They were like, a South Precinct officer got shot. If you can make it to work tomorrow, or unless you're too emotionally distraught, then you don't have to come is what they said. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. And I go to work, and I remember my sergeant was told me, he was like, <clears throat> he found out how, that Edgar was in my police academy, that we were the four, everyone knew about the four-man academy. They yeah, thought we were yeah. crazy because there was only four of us. And they, they were like, he was in the academy with Justin. Oh, my gosh. And then so they pull me aside, and they're talking to me, and my sergeant's like, look, I know, I can only imagine, or I know what you're feeling because he lost people. And he's like, I know what you're feeling right now, and... And the only advice I'm going to give you is that you need to go out and operate right now. Get in your car and go do work. And then so I did that, dude. I got in my car. Everyone else was afraid to pull people over at first. I was pulling people. I remember it. I felt weird saying uh, radio 1048. That means traffic stop. I remember it feels weird. And then I just started pulling people over like crazy, man. I just chasing more people, pulling them over, catching felonies and, you know, I I didn't have a death wish. People have asked me that before. I didn't I didn't want to die. But I was also at home drinking myself to death. But I didn't have, I didn't want to die. I wasn't looking to get shot, but I was looking to arrest as many people who were willing to shoot cops as possible. And so as more people I pulled over, I better. But the more people you pull over at 3 a.m. in DeKalb County, the more crazy situations you get in. So yeah, I was all the time coming home to my wife like with these stories and stuff and she was seeing it affect me and it was man I was the stuff I was seeing at work I started to bring home with me and I started to resent my sons in a little bit of a way because I would see these kids at, at, at living in such an animalistic way and mm -hmm. in, in, in these project housing and I would get home to them and they would smell like roses and they'd be clean and I'd be like and they'd be complaining I'm like you don't even know like <laughs> what I saw today and I was taking a lot of that stuff like I truly believe there's people who are meant to be police I believe I was meant to go out and do good but I think that I don't know that my heart was meant to see all that and to deal with that and it was affecting me bad and I was drowning myself in, in alcohol and so when Flores died, 
my alcohol skyrocket skyrocketed, my work product productivity skyrocketed. Yeah. And I gave his eulogy. Giving his eulogy made my name known across the department. Um, I got up there and it was hard and it was emotional and <clears throat> uh, it got shared. It went viral. You know what I mean? All over and. So I got recognition for that. And when an opportunity for homicide detective opened, I thought, I literally thought, well, with the fact that they know my name now and the fact that I pull, I've arrested five people last Sunday on one shift by myself, they're going to give this position to me as long as I can go interview well. And I went in there and interviewed well. And at that time, in my mind, by the grace of God, I made homicide detective um, in March of 2019. I solved my first murder, had murder warrants with my name, Detective Justin Hamilton, on them. I did that in June of 2019, and I was arrested for DUI in July of 2019. Yeah, that's uh, that's insane, dude. I was when you told me that story earlier. I was not expecting that last part. Yeah, I was like. <laughs> All right, this dude's rocking and rolling. He's moving up. He's now he's he's in this new position, and then you hit that me with that. Yeah, and I was like, "Hold up!" I was not expecting to hear that. Yeah, God punched me right in the face and uh, said, "Stop." <laughs> um, I I can't talk too much about the DUI itself because uh, it happened before COVID. And I guess I got a good lawyer and I, it's still pending. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. I can't talk about the, the specifics, but I will say I struck a human being with my vehicle and my brothers in blue decided to take me off the road and I tell them good job. Um, but I did sit in a jail cell as a homicide detective in the city of Atlanta jail. If it was the longest 30 something hours of my life, you know, I had only seen Oz and stuff <laughs> on TV. Yeah. And I had seen the crazy people I dropped off in jail. I knew that there was quite possibly some people in that jail I put there. And I was wondering what, what time the door's going to open and I'm going to die. And so I didn't sleep and I stared at the door. Um, and I left and yeah, can, uh, and I didn't get sober. <laughs> I want to go back real quick and touch on that it, advice that your sergeant gave you. I, I want to get your perspective on that. Like you said it earlier, you came in and he said the best thing that you can do right now is go out and operate, get back after it. What do you think about that? Now, <laughs> when I look at that now, I think that, and this is no offense to that man. But think, yeah, exactly. I think that's the worst advice I could have ever been given. Yep. I needed to deal with that death right then and there, but I hit it. I went out and worked and drank. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> I dealt with it a lot long, a lot later after some chaos yep. ensued. So yeah, I uh, I get out of jail. It's no, it's no offense to him. No. Because that's all we know, dude. Yeah. Like this is the same crap in the military, dude. Yep. That's all. That's all we know to do. Yeah, like there is not a big difference between a special forces operator and a police officer in DeKalb County, Georgia. Yeah, the the amount of difficult situations that they face, the risks that they assume. Yeah, 
the people they're dealing with, there's not, it's, it's the same type of lifestyle. And it's the only thing that we know how to do. And it's the only advice that we know how to give others. It's just, Oh, just keep going, man. Like yeah. I remember when my, when my sea daddy, Jake Hubman killed himself in 2012, I was sitting in a hotel room by myself in Reno, Nevada, had just come off of a training trip, mobility training trip. My senior chief walks in to my room, drunk as a dang skunk, holding, you know, holding a glass of whiskey and tells me Jake killed himself. Roger that. Well, we're leaving Nevada tomorrow and then we're going straight into CQC yep. training block. And then we're leaving there, and we're going straight into land warfare. And then we're leaving there, and we're going to North Africa. Yeah. Sorry. That's it. Keep going, man. Yeah. That's all we know. Bury that. Deal with it later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a decade later, man. Yeah, like, man. what the crap, dude? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, I just had to touch on that, man. <laughs> no, man, I've thought about the answer. that. That is not the answer. It's the opposite. Yeah, I've thought about it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, no offense to him because uh, – that's how he's made his 20-something years. It's the same advice any operator yeah. would give you. And, and you know, I'm, I'm starting to learn more and more, too. Like when people are going through some crap, I've been through some crap. You've been through some crap. When we see somebody else going through some crap, the worst thing to say is, I know, I know what you're feeling or <laughs> I know what you're going through. Yeah. No, nah, man. Probably don't. Just say, even if you think you know what that person's going through, just say something more along the lines of, I'm sorry this sucks. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be here for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, again, not a hit on anybody because that's the way, that's just what we know as operators Yeah. is just keep going. So, I want to take a quick break, Justin, and then yeah. I want to continue on the story. Let's do it. Guys, have you ever wondered how we here at 307 Project are able to sit down and produce these podcasts and curate these conversations, how we have uh, the time and also the financial ability to have all of the equipment to make all this happen? Let me tell you how all this happens. It happens because of our members over on on uh, Patreon. They are our the biggest supporters of the show are our biggest supporters, right? You've heard us talk about Patreon before. Patreon is not a fan club. It is a private community uh, where we get to interact and provide extra value to the people who have decided to make the commitment to support everything that we do here at 307 Project, all right? So we do a live show over there called Resurrected. Uh, I have the Nuff Said podcast over there. I know I get a lot of you guys reaching out saying, I wish you had more than one episode a week on the 307 podcast. If you want more, uh, we have two other shows that are hosted on Patreon. Um, we have our range series over there. A lot, of, a lot of cool stuff. We've been doing Patreon for a couple years now. We have almost 500 members over there. Uh, it's a super simple platform to use. You download the app. You sign up and uh, you use it just like a, a private social media platform without all the bull crap, without all the advertising, without all the 
the bull crap that you don't want to see on regular social media. And uh, it's super user-friendly. So Patreon, everybody who's over there right now, I want to thank you for allowing this conversation to happen. Uh, it's It would be absolutely unsustainable to do the show on the level that we do it without you guys supporting us. Um, and I just hope that we're, continue to, we're able to continue to provide extra value for you guys there. If you're interested in joining us, uh, our Patreon community, I'll attach a link to our Patreon page right here in the show notes of this episode. So you can literally just click it and it'll give you kind of a rundown of what is there and um, and how to how to jump in the mix over there. It means a lot to us. It would be, again, impossible and unsustainable without it. And uh, I just cannot thank you guys enough for the gracious support and the unyielding commitment that you guys have given 307 Project through Patreon over the years. It means a tremendous amount. And while I'm on here, I wanted to tell you about a new knife that we partnered with our buddy, Shea Butler. You guys know we've been using Shea Butler's knives for years now out in the backcountry. He is a master knife maker. Uh, his products are made right here in America. He puts a ton of attention to detail into his knives. He's a master craftsman and has been a good friend of ours here at 307 Project for a long time. We were able to partner with Shea to design a new, brand new knife called the Instinct, all right? Uh, you guys are hearing about it for the first time here on the podcast. I'm going to attach a link in the show notes of this episode also, directly bringing you to the Instinct, the new knife we created that you guys can check out. I've been carrying, it's a fixed blade knife. I've been carrying it with me for the last about month now, and it is just a wonderful functional blade. It's the perfect size, the perfect weight, and uh, it's not your junk that you're going to buy from you know, your Walmart or your little local outdoor store. Uh, it's, it's a step above the big production knives that are out there on the market today in terms of quality and attention to detail. It is an outstanding blade that will last you a lifetime if you take care of it. And these are available in limited supply. Um, I'm just really, really excited for you guys to see this and hopefully get one of your own that you can use, abuse, and then hopefully pass it down to someone who means something to you one day. So check them out. Go to the link in the show notes and check out the SBK 3 of 7 Project partnership on The Instinct. All right, guys, back to the show. All right, we're back. We are back. Um... So before we kind of carry on with your story, Justin, I want to just really, I want to just real quick go back to um, when Edgar's life was taken. I don't want to, I don't want to breeze over that because yeah, seems like what like one. I want to honor him for his service to our community and uh, the courage that it had to. It, it took to do the job he was doing where he was doing it. Um, 
so I want to honor him. And I also want to go back because, you know, when we were talking earlier today, you talked as if that everything didn't get better after that. Obviously, everything got worse. Yeah. But you talk that as being in, uh, maybe I misunderstood it. If I did, that's fine. But as maybe a pivotal moment in your faith. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. And, yeah, I'd like to hit on that too, man. Uh, <clears throat> so, there's a, for any alcoholic specifically, <laughs> you can relate. There's this cycle you get into once you figure out that drinking alcohol is the cure to a hangover. And then you find yourself five years later that you've drank every day for five years and now you're physically addicted to it or whatever. Well, generally, you know, you wake up super hungover, you drink and you feel better and then you just keep drinking. Well, I had prior to uh, getting arrested for DUI, I'd actually been in a really bad car accident. So I had a bunch of pills. I was in a car accident at work and really almost died. But yeah, so I had all these pills. And so for one night, I didn't drink. My mom was in town, and uh, I remember taking a bunch of pills, and I woke up, and I didn't have that hangover, sour feeling. And so I was like, okay, this is it. You know what I mean? Don't drink today. And so I was sober. I went to AA and got a chip and uh, July 25th, 2019. And then sitting in that sobriety, I felt an overwhelming amount of shame for the way I'd been living my life since Edgar had so honorably given or sacrificed his, yeah. you know, I was given mine away in the most disgusting way. Yeah. On the surface, I was a homicide detective, but we all knew what was happening. Me, God and Edgar knew what was happening in the closet while I was chugging, you know, malt liquor behind my wife's back. And I saw that I saw him see me and I was in front of God for the first time in a very long time, very naked and vulnerable. And, uh, Edgar and that little scene I talked to y'all about with my son watching the cartoons earlier, those two things on that day are what gave me the strength to like, to go after this, after sobriety. And much like anything else in life, I, well, the fight for sobriety was easier because I was doing it for Edgar and Gabriel Mm -hmm. rather than myself. Kind of like when Mid-State Mile got hard, I wanted to tell my story, so I kept, I stayed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, God entered my heart, my very dark and depressive heart, through love, through a man named Edgar Flores dying. His death is what gave me the strength to, to fight, man. And it is why I feel like I have an unpayable debt. <clears throat> which is why <coughs> running pain is so silly to me. Pain at mid-state is so silly because it's self-induced and it can stop at any time. Mm-hmm. The pain Edgar felt was real. The pain his mom felt when she got that call. The pain I felt when I hit the floor. All that's real. And when I go out here and I honor him in the races, not only does it give me strength to push on further and further, But it gives me a reason, you know, it gives me a reason not to quit. It gives me someone to honor outside myself. And this is no longer about me. Um, Yeah. You know, when the race goes bad at Coca-Dona or Fierce Dragon, and now we're we're finishing 
tens of hours after we plan to. I'm in it because Edgar, you know, he, he, he was in the fight when he gave foot chase to that guy. When he got shot, he tried to get on the radio. He did. He was fighting for his life. Mm-hmm. And that's real pain. That's real, that's real passion. And that's why the running thing just seems, <clears throat> it seems too easy to quit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Edgar gave that to me too. Um, but yeah, they're 100%, man. I owe me turning back to God to Edgar's death for sure. Mm. Because I did not, <clears throat> I hadn't felt, I hadn't felt passion like that for anything in a long time. Yeah. But That's I did. powerful, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I think you, you beautifully, you beautifully described what um, I try to explain to people all the time we in the ultra running community like to very flippantly throw throw around this word suffer we are not suffering no in in any physical endeavor so suffering the essence of suffering is is the pain either physically or emotionally that someone feels when they are going through the final stages of cancer yes. when they lose a loved one um, when, when life happens and it's causing pain and discomfort, that's outside of your control. You can't go, you can't step out of it, get a little sleep and yep. then feel better. Yep. Like that's not an option. Mm-mm. That's true suffering. Yeah. Now, how the, how the two correlate is you can build a lot of the same tools and muscle memory in, in that fake suffering that we do in running that, that's going to serve you well when you do really, truly Absolutely. have to suffer, which all of you listening, including me and Justin, there's going to be some times coming sooner than you probably want them to where you're going to have to truly suffer. And so that's the point in doing what we do. And then I think another thing that you hit on when we did our treadmill race, that was my thing to, that was our thing to raise money for David Charbonnet and his clinic out in California. David's paralyzed. I went through seal training with David. He was paralyzed in a parachuting accident. And the whole thing for me, I had this little note taped to the treadmill and it said for those who can't, Yeah, you know, and, um, all of all of you have people in your life that you can look at and say they can't do you know they they can't they can't do this anymore yeah. like they can't do the things that make life you know rich any they 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 can't do it and so well, you know why why are you wasting Literally, you're wasting your life. Yeah. Like the most precious thing that you possess is time. Other than your faith. I I believe my faith for me is the most precious thing that I've been given. But other than that, it's time. Yeah. And dude, every hour I spend on this stinking thing, every, I just have my phone in my hand, by the way. Every hour you spend or every day or month or year you spend of your life where you're just you're just eating trash food and you're overweight and you're just 
being a straight turd and you know you're just you're you're just happy with whatever little you know mundane thing that that you're you've decided to do for the next 30 years of your life that's not challenging you not pushing you not forcing you to grow not serving others like you've just settled in that man yep well you're just wasting this precious gift that you have that is time and physical the the physical ability to go and do great things if you would just you know quit eating bojangles every <laughs> twice a day like you have to make some minor changes and you're going to be you're going to to me it's just the most selfish thing on earth when i look at people who are basically just waiting to die. Yeah. Like when I look at them and a lot of them are overweight. Now there's a lot of things that play into someone that's morbidly obese or overweight to the point that it's affecting their day-to-day life. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to diagnose that right now. But when I look at people that are in that position in, in life, I just say, how freaking selfish are you, man? You don't have anything else wrong with you other than the things that are wrong with you that are because of what you're doing to yourself. Yeah, it's self-induced. And I'm like, how selfish are you, man? So I wanted to point that out, man. And thank you for sharing, going back to that part of your story and and talking through that because I think that's some really valuable stuff for people to consider. Yeah, man. There was, was, yeah. Edgar, Edgar gave his life trying to make this world a better place simply put and and yeah i I was whether it was 15 orders of bojangles or mike's hard lemonade for me (laughs) you know what i mean i was wasting away i was withering to nothing Mm -hmm. and there's men just like edgar women just men and women just like edgar dying every day or, or who can't get out of bed because they got stage four cancer or they just got diagnosed or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I owe it to them to get out and, you know. You have to keep, you have to keep that stuff in perspective, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Look around you. Um, all right. Let's jump back forward. Yeah. You've been, you sat in this jail cell for 30 hours. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine that's freaking nerve-wracking yeah, for yeah. all the reasons you stated earlier um dude i have so many questions like i know obviously you get out but like what do you do when you when you get where do you go from there like man it's crazy like yeah, i'm getting out processed from a jail had you talked to steph your wife yeah okay she was, uh, <clears throat> she was, su- she was supportive. I'll be, yeah, caught. I mean, she was, she was perfect in that situation for me, man. Um, my face was all over Atlanta news stations. Okay. She felt bad for her husband. It wasn't just me in jail. It was it was her family on the news. You know what I mean? And. We, I got out of jail. We went dark for a couple of days, and her family literally thought I had killed myself, killed them and myself. Uh, 
just because I was a cop that got arrested, you know what I mean? My career's over. I'm already an alcoholic and now this. Um, but I went back and, you know, I just, <laughs> it's funny because I continued drinking at home. Um, the accident, I don't know, man. It's like, <sighs> I don't know why I didn't stop after the, after the DUI. So my, my, Cause that freaking crap's powerful, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was deep, and so two representatives from the police department come to my house to ask me essentially, "What do you want to do?" Because you, the people generally quit; they'll quit before they get fired, and they'll try to get a job, some police, and somewhere else. Like, believe it or not, like they need cops bad right now. And if I wanted to be a cop right now, I mean, now it's a little stretch, been a long time. But while I was still a certified peace officer in the state of Georgia, I could have got a job somewhere else. Like it, it happens. Uh, there's some, there's some counties and some cities here that really will pay just about anybody to defend them. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, and we're at the point where we're like, <laughs> we need some defense. Uh, that's a whole, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Why is it like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so. So that like they're you gonna quit? And I'm like, well, do I have a job still? And they said you might. Like they said, there's been they start going over the other case, and they can't tell me people's names, but they're like, there's been instances. They're like, what you have to do is get sober. They're like, the first step to show the department that you're serious about keeping your job is to go through the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program. You basically call them and tell them you're an alcoholic and you need help, and you follow everything they say. They report back to your chain of command everything like there's no more your work's gonna know about your life now and i was like let's do it i want i was like i need to be a cop still dude like that's who i am that's all i have and now i'm sober <laughs> for a couple days okay. and now i'm like so when they come and tell me this it, so i'm like okay i'm gonna get i'm gonna get sober you know what i mean um I, or I had the the motivation to get sober i had just a little something extra, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. then so my my mom, meantime, is like, my son's all over the news. He's not answering his phone. And she comes to Georgia and, like, to find, like, to come to help me. And, like, so she comes for that night. I'm on all these pills. I don't drink for a day. And, uh, yeah, I go to AA. And that's when that mental clarity kind of hit me. But it was just a dump truck full of shame for how I was living my life while Edgar so honorably sacrificed his. And I started to attack my sobriety very violently and deliberately. And um, I went, not only did I go to AA, but I went to the uh, VA and went there and was like, hey, I'm a veteran, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and then so they, I was there for like four months, every day for like four hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, not four hours. I was there for like the entire day. I'd go at like 9 a.m. and I'd leave at the end of the day and it was just all class and I'm just going <sighs> I we're going with this the VA that they were sending me to wasn't the Atlanta VA it was another one in even worse part of town because I worked in a cab that's where the Atlanta VA was yeah and that's like the best part of the cab in my opinion <laughs> and so I wasn't worried about that but I got sent to the I forget where it was east something and we're over there, and I am the only Caucasian dude in the room, and I'm a cop, and they don't know this. And then so I'm, I have this opportunity to get to know these individuals from a completely different 
I there's some of these people are quite literally sitting here because someone like me arrested them for crack and now they're here or heroin and now they're here. Yeah. And the and the uh, counselor was like, "Do you want to tell them you're a cop?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> let me just do this as a human." And I did it as a human. And my best buddy that I made there was this 67 year old black man named Pink who would bring me burnt CDs of Sade, which is like a smooth jazz singer. <laughs> and it became my best buddy. And uh, I'll never forget it at like the end of it when I got to tell like, at the end when you're getting close to leaving, you get to tell kind of your life story. And then I was like, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I told, I'm telling the story about me being a cop and they're all just like sitting over there like what their jaws are dropping the floor you're the police like interrupted me and like the yeah. counselor's like chill out chill out and then uh pink comes up to me and he was like i am so glad i didn't know you were a cop he said i never would have talked to you yeah not yeah. not yeah never a white cop he's like you are the enemy in in this area you know mm -hmm. and we got to know each other just as humans and <clears throat> That, that's awesome dude. yeah man it was it was an opportunity for me to go back into that community not as a cop and and like yeah and to just be a human and got was, to know each other just as humans that's so awesome yeah, dude it was cool it, because all of this uh all of this racism stuff and, mm -hmm. and, and 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 yeah i mean racism is a real thing dude but it's propagated by by media and by um politics and and these judge we, we make judgments about each other in when you talk about just when we can come together just as humans man like yeah. there's nothing at all that makes sense about me treating someone different because they look different than me or because they're from somewhere else than I, you know, some other culture. Like, not they, if we're Christians. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's nothing that makes sense about that. You look at kids, man. You look at young kids that are out on the playground together. They, they don't. They don't. It being racist or hating someone because they're the other, some other color or, or nationality or or whatever. That's all programmed crap, dude. Oh, yeah. That's not a natural way that humans treat each other, man. No. And you saw it right there. Yeah. yeah. We, we wanted to immediately, because uh, we were, again, in, in kind of like an ultra sense, we were in, we had, we were in distress together in that rehab. We all were there for a reason, and we all had to do a certain amount of time and so we were in it together, and so it, it just amplified that uh, yeah. humans coming together, that community, dude. It was awesome, and it was cool to see their faces after, mm -hmm. and that they all still like, no matter what. They like, I was hoping to be still become to go back to work after mm -hmm. that. I was going to be a cop, and they were like high fiving me and hugging me, and it was good. And and so yeah, <laughs> so I do all this stuff, and I now I did care. To still be a police officer, but I didn't care as much. Now I wanted to be sober. Now I wanted to be a better husband and a better dad. Now I saw that Gabriel might not have an alcoholic dad for the rest of his life. And so I started fighting for myself too, man. And that's when like the real miracle started to happen is <clears throat> I 
started running on a treadmill in my basement. I told you it had no screen on it. The screen had died. And if you press, I had a little piece of paper and it had, hey, if you press seven, it means eight minute mile or something. So I would just do that. I'd press seven and run for as many hours as I could. And then my wife saw that it was, you know, good for me, the running. And so we went and got me a better treadmill. I started running on that and I posted online to this uh, ultra East Coast Trail and Ultra Runners page. There used to be a Facebook page for it. And uh, I put, hey, I ran a marathon on my treadmill, boasting, thinking I was cool. Yeah. And there, those these real ultra runners lit me up with all these links to these, hey, this guy runs 200 miles. or, And then it was the treadmill 100 miler. And you mm -hmm. click on it. It was on ultra sign up. And there's a little race you could do virtually. You take a bunch of pictures before you get off the treadmill and stuff. And so I signed up for it and ended up training for uh, a 100 miler on a treadmill. And, uh, yeah, throughout this process, I was like, um, going to, when I, when I went to AA, there was, the cops were few and far between in there too. So anytime a cop would come in, they would call me and they would give them a number and I'd call them. I'd be like, yeah, I know you're freaking out. <laughs> I know you think this is the end of your life, but chill out. You're not, mm -hmm. don't kill yourself. <laughs> There's more. Mm -hmm. Even if you never get your badge back, you're going to be okay. Trust me. Wow, dude. That had to have been powerful. Dude, it was a good, them. it yeah. was a great opportunity. And, uh, yeah, I was fighting, you know, for not only myself anymore, but for the opportunity to inspire and, and to tell the little bit of a story that I had. And yeah, so I, you know, I've been sober for almost July 25th will be four years. And there's been so many ups and downs within sobriety. But like I told you earlier, so the year I trained for and won Mid-State Mile was one of the hardest years of my life. And I told Chad the only thing that I felt like I did right in that year was not drink, was not pick up alcohol. Um, so I, I ran that 100-miler on the treadmill. And, and when, when did it become like solid you're not going back to the police force? Okay, yeah, I didn't hit on that. So... October of 2019, they they say, hey, come in. You're going to sit in front of people, and they're about to tell you what's going to happen. And yeah. so now I had, from July 25th to October 4th, sober. And I had built up some armor. I had some friends in sobriety. I was, you know, I was ready to lose my badge in a sense. If it was going to happen, now I, I had some, some armor. Okay. And so I went to work. <laughs> I drove up and I go in there and they slide the paper across and it says, you've been, you're being terminated. And, uh, <clears throat> they're like, uh, yeah, yeah. They said you're being terminated and it hit me like a ton of bricks, even though I was ready for it. But then I was just like, my wife at that time had been looking for jobs. And so we were also, as much as I had this big thing just happen to me, it was now time to make some moves and get some more income. And she, she called back, like I said, Hey, they fired, <laughs> I'm done. So she started calling back people that emailed her about, you know, stuff on LinkedIn and stuff. And she gets a job, man. And we end up, uh, deciding, okay, you'll work and I'll be a stay at home dad because mm -hmm. she was a stay at home mom directly after two combat tours in Afghanistan being a fight house instructor in Korea, she taught uh, combatives level three for two years in Korea. She's not your average stay-at-home housewife, you know what I mean? She needs to shoot, move, and communicate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 
she wasn't prospering at home. And so we were like, well, let's swap it up and see what happens. And so I started driving my sons to Mother's Morning Out. And it was a little thing a church had so I could go run. I'd drop them off and I'd go run, drop them off and run. And I just became a, a, a Manny that ran a lot. And I, dude, I ran with, stro- I had, I had a, a, a pushable stroller that I had like real mountain bike tires on suspension and I would take it on the trails and I just took them everywhere and ran like crazy. And, uh, by the way, if Steph listens to this, Steph, uh, I might have a job for you if you want to do some like contracting type of stuff with 307 Project. <laughs> yeah, she, she'd so, be down. <laughs> yeah. I have a real passion for, for training females and it like to be able to bring somebody like her oh, on, she's a on shark. board. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know, man. I just had to tell her that through yeah, the podcast. Yeah, she'll listen to this for case, sure. In case I don't get to talk to her. So. <laughs> just hit me up, Steph. Yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> I, um, uh, so, yeah, man. Where was I? What was I saying? You were talking about you're getting into running, man, and, mm-hmm. and that's um, that's doing good things for you, which is, you know, a question that I, I had written on my page here is, like, why – why the why running yeah you know why the ultra running and you know you've kind of you kind of touched on that it just was something that it sounds like on that little treadmill in the basement is where it started yeah man yeah it was uh so the car accident i had gotten into two weeks prior to my dui i was going 70 miles an hour on i-85 and hit a parked car on the shoulder and my sergeant wouldn't show me the pictures of my my cruiser or whatever, because he thought it was going to mess with my mind. Uh, they thought I was dead, you know, and, uh, the seat, the the steering wheel had hit my midsection so hard in my like left hip flexor area that I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't lay down straight in bed. I had to sleep in the fetal position because anytime I straightened out, it felt like it was a guitar string about to snap. And then, so yeah, I started running on that little treadmill, but I'd had to run bent over <laughs> because I couldn't stand up straight. And so, yeah, I, I, I went from not being able to run to running like marathon distance on that rickety treadmill. So yeah, there's a lot, I grew a lot in that little basement, man. Um, but it was, it was seeing the work I was putting into coming to fruition in the form of finishing a marathon on the treadmill first mm-hmm. and then being able to train for a hundred miler. And I was just, I was captivated by it. And I remember my wife said, well, what are you going to do? Like, I know you're a stay at home dad, but what are you going to do now? This was like three years ago. I said, I'm going to be a professional ultra marathon runner. <laughs> and I'm looking at her overweight, <laughs> can't stand up straight. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's uh, and there's about five people in the whole country who make a living ultra running. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and they, if, <laughs> yeah, and they're freaks of nature. Yeah, uh, and so she laughs and was like, "Okay, you know, whatever, let's see." And uh, I did, man. I when I ran uh, that 100 mile on the treadmill, I trained. I was gonna run it in 15 hours because if you won, you get a free treadmill. smoking. Yeah. And I'd never run anything in my life. So I was like, well, I got to run at what, an eight minute pace. And I was like, okay. So I was like, I'm going to start running eight minute pace everywhere until I can get up to a hundred miles. And so I went out and ran a 50 K on the road out in Noonan, Georgia. And I did it in eight minute pace. So I'm sitting here like, you're doing this, bro. (laughs) Get yourself up to 50 miler, do a hundred K. And then you got this in the bag. Uh, There's like, 
probably 20 people in America that can run a hundred miles under 15 hours. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, smoking. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I was super naive. And then I ended up after that 50 K I couldn't walk for like a couple of weeks, did some really bad stuff to my legs. Um, and then, yeah. So then I started looking into training. I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go pro, I better become, you know, a smart ultra runner. And I started reading in all to the all the literature, and I was also starting college with the GI Bill, and that was how we were making ends meet. You get paid BAH yep, um, yep. housing allowance while you're on the <clears throat> GI Bill, and so I was knocking out classes and getting into reading scientific literature, and I was like, well, let me just start reading about ultra stuff, the science behind it, and there wasn't a lot really three or four years ago. Um, Compared to what there is now with Jason Coop and all that he's, you know what I mean, putting out there. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was diving into all the literature, reading about how to act, you know, actually progress my mileage each week, how to train race, all the stuff. And yeah, I became an awesome, I started training the correct way. And I started to see, I wouldn't say success in ultra running. Like I ran the cruel drool 100 was probably the coolest race around in my area over there where I, where I ran I ran it and I got like it's probably the coolest hundred miler in Georgia. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. The, I mean, I'd, I'd say potentially the Southeast. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, just by the pure numbers of it, it's one of the hardest. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I got 14th there. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'm not doing too bad. And, and then I ran Georgia jewel and I got seventh and I'm like, I'm creeping up the leaderboard here. And then uh, I was like, yeah, that's when I found Mid-State. <laughs> and Mid-State's was when I was like, oh, man, I could put my head down, go slow, use this endurance God has given me my whole life to be able to go through all this crap. Yeah. And I can, and this is the type of race where, where like VO2 max doesn't mean as much and the will to win does. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we talked about that and – and then, so, yeah, I'm training for Mid-State, man. And this whole time, like, Steph's working in corporate America. Or we, she was working in corporate America, and we made that move to the mountains. And, you know, she basically came home and presented me a presentation of how she could quit her job. We could sell our house for a bunch of money and literally go from living a white-collar life with brand-new cars to living in the mountains with a beat-up Honda Odyssey. Yeah, you know what I mean? but not <laughs> having a bunch of debt. No debt, So you're exactly. free to We're kind free. of explore... New What's life. next? Yes. Yeah. And I and so we knew I had been diving deep into the the becoming a student of ultra running. And I was like, man, I'm I'm getting pretty, you know, knowledgeable about this stuff. Not, you know, I might not be winning races, but I feel like I could coach people to win races. If they were if they had that natural ability we talked about, if they came from running, you know, fifteen minute five Ks, I feel like I could train some really stellar athletes. Maybe I won't be a world class runner. But maybe I'll train a world-class runner. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I got into that mindset. I really didn't care about being pro anymore. I just wanted to, to coach people and train people. Yeah. And I loved to run. And then so she presents me with that presentation. We, we, she quits her job. We sell her house. And we move to Blairsville, Georgia at the base of Brass Town Bald with like, I mean, there's three trails that run up that mountain. And they're <laughs> some of the hardest around. And so that's all I've ended up running on, man. And... We get out there and we're living in the hills. Stephanie had been uh, so she when she got out of the army, she was a staff sergeant, did ten years almost. Staff sergeant in the army, two combat deployments, was a 
platoon sergeant over there, was in charge of millions of dollars worth of military equipment, had all this life and all this responsibility. And then, then she was a stay-at-home mom, and she got back into corporate America, and she was, dude, she was excelling. She was thriving. And it was like you can stay and keep thriving and be miserable, or you can go here and we can find out what you really want to do mm-hmm. and what you want to thrive. What do you, who, go be miserable 40 hours a week making something you want to love grow. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? You no, want to see to- grow. Yeah, totally. And she's so artistic, man. And, and, like, and, it, and she was. I'm so glad to hear she's tattooing now. Because, <laughs> yeah, man. Like, yeah. I need some more uh-huh. tattoos. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Yep. I I have a personal question for you. Um, Mm -hmm. Like something that we breezed over just a second ago is that transition that you made to being a stay-at-home dad, you called it, or, you know, having the opportunity to spend the majority of your time raising your sons. Yeah. So it's really – that transition for me is really interesting – because of that moment earlier in your life where you put your head in your son's lap and cried because you were like, he drew the short end of the stick with me. So, like, how does it feel now to, like, be the father? I see you with your kids. Like, I, I you had your boys out at the 307 Project race, last year and i'm watching how you interact with your kids right yeah and i see you interacting with your sons on you know online when you post about things you guys are doing and you're killing it dude like you are a really engaged and committed father yeah man. and like you're setting an example right now that your son's will not forget for the rest of their lives. You know how I know that? Because my mom set an example for me, especially in terms of athletics and mental toughness and that I've never forgot for the rest yeah. of my life. And I was just, I was about your kids, your your son's ages when she was doing that. So like, that's, that's freaking major that you, you go from thinking that you'll never be a good father to like, okay, now this is my primary mission in life. <laughs> yeah. Like what the crap does that feel like, dude? Say so it's a, I took it on just like how you mentioned it, man, is when I got sober and I was like, this is going to be my job now. I said, I'm going to be the best stay at home dad as I, that I can. And not, I say a stay at home dad, but like, you know, I'm not a stay at home. We don't stay home. We're out. We go. Do I agree. Stuff. Yeah. And, um, it is an absolutely amazing and unorthodox opportunity, but my wife and I talked about it, and I said, you know what, if I could have chose to have my dad teach me everything every day while he was gone and my mom was at home, I would have chose my dad. I don't know how, when I joined the military, you could have popped your hood of your car, couldn't have told you nothing. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't have, I don't know car. I didn't know, I didn't know anything because anyone taught me. I learned it all. I learned carpentry myself. I learned it all. And now I have the opportunity to teach them everything. No, I didn't learn, you know? Yeah. And this is no, I don't have a relationship with my father. We haven't spoke, uh, since the DUI incident really. And, um, but one thing, <sighs> Thank you.
He, but I'm, so in his defense, I'll say, because I'm sitting here saying no one taught me, no one taught me. My dad did 31 years in the United States Navy. Yeah. And was a chief warrant officer for when he retired and was a great husband and is a great provider and was busy. And I <laughs> traditionally that's, <laughs> that's what our generation experienced. Yeah. And so no one taught me anything. Yeah. And, uh, I don't do that now. Um, I find every opportunity I can to teach my son something, man, something. And especially if it's when I mess up and I so step, what something Stephanie points out to that I do all the time is I always tell them, Hey, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I don't know why I snapped at you that way just a minute ago. She tells me I couldn't imagine any fathers I grew up with saying the words I'm sorry to their son. And, mm. and yeah, man, it is. So I see, it was like I was talking about with my dog earlier when I found out he was going to die. I was like, I didn't treat him right. I didn't get that opportunity to treat him right for long enough after I was a bad dog dad. I was a bad dog dad for his first year of life. He only lived three. I was only a good dog dad for two. <laughs> yeah. Theo died. I didn't get an opportunity. And here I am with actual human sons with this opportunity to just be the best dad I can be. And I'm going to, you know, I show my weaknesses to them. I think that's one of the most important things that I do as a father is that I show them I have weaknesses. I'm not perfect and that I am sorry sometimes. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the most, the most important things I try to show them. It's okay to mess up. Just yeah. don't stay in it. You know what I mean? Like when people relapse – <clears throat> it is so I'm far I'm, I'm three three and a half four years away from my last relapse so it's it's kind of far away for me to 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 imagine doing it but it's not impossibility as soon as I let my guard down it can happen but those people who do relapse and they come back I'm always amazed today at this type of point in my life when I hear someone's hey uh you know they've they were using behind so-and-so's back for six months they told them and now that and now they're they got a first chip or whatever i'm like what they came back you know what i mean yeah. we don't make it <laughs> you know yeah. we're gonna mess up we're alcoholics we're addicts we're addicted to whatever and it's okay to slip or it's not tr don't slip but if you do by all means come back and yeah. <laughs> don't stay yeah. out there well, because it's not that come you're not ever too far gone that's what i've learned and that's what i've always my father told me during that DUI situation, he said, you're never going to change. You're never going to accept responsibility for your life. He was wrong because at that time I was. I was in rehab. I was taking responsibility. But he had experienced an individual for 31 years who hadn't. Mm -hmm. So what he was saying was true to him. And uh, on that point in time, man, I started taking utter responsibility, like complete and utter responsibility for all my decisions and Dang it, man. And, and it, yeah. So, like, I might not talk to my dad right now. Um, may never. <laughs> uh, but his last words kind of stuck with me, you know what I mean, either way. Dang it, man. Well, it's crazy, man. It's crazy to think that, like, if we would have sat down and did this interview just five or six years ago, like, I would have been talking to a totally oh, dude. different person. Completely. I have, like the podcast would have been completely different. <laughs> dude, you talked to me a year ago. Um, 
you were talking to me leading up to the mid state, I wouldn't I would have been embarrassed watching this podcast a year later. I wouldn't have wanted that individual to be broadcasted to the universe. Dude. I uh <laughs> I uh I was in a dark time in my life, man. Um in sobriety. And yeah, we trained for mid state and we showed up a married couple, my wife and I. We showed up a family and that was a you know, I liked what people believed that they saw. I liked that people were inspired by my wife helping me win, but it was just fake. It wasn't, we were, our marriage was ending. Yeah. Yeah. And we get home and yeah, by October I'm signing for a condo in Helen, Georgia, and we're talking about divorce and we're the only thing we can agree on is that we don't want anything. We just want kids half the time, and that's it. We just want 50-50 custody. We didn't care about nothing else. And right off the bat, that showed me where her mind was at, too. You know what I mean? She didn't hate me. I didn't hate her. We were living in a way that was inconducive to a healthy lifestyle for me, her, and our two sons. We both come from traumatic childhoods, we made a decision that we weren't going to do this as much as we loved each other and wanted to stay under one roof and, and duke this out. She is a combative instructor. She is a platoon sergeant. I am a PTSD riddled ex homicide detective. When we fight, we fight and it's not good. So we decided we need to take violence of action that we love so much and we need to separate and figure this out and breathe. And we separated, man. And I went and that stay-at-home dad gig was over. Now I had bills to pay. And now we had two mortgages, essentially. Double bills everywhere. And there was two weeks time during that separation, right in the early, like the first month or two, where we were, we were going to get divorced and we weren't talking. And I felt, I could see it. I could see that neither of us wanted this. We didn't want to be separated, but we were starting to accept the new norm. The dropping. Dude, that was so powerful when you told me that earlier. Yeah, man. Yeah. We were dropping. So look, I'm dropping the kids off every other week. And then I have one week to just, I work and I run. I work and I run. And it sucked because I, I didn't, I lost... 50% of my being in their life all the time and it hurt but I started to get used to it you know what I mean they didn't the kids didn't and uh I remember calling Steph and just saying we <clears throat> we're gonna fight and it wasn't even a she was waiting for her husband to say I'm fighting for our, my marriage you know what I mean there <clears throat> there was a point in my marriage towards the end, obviously where an out was an option. And I'm not saying stay married by all means, kill each other. But there was, we, we were, we weren't entertaining being married anymore. Mm -hmm. We were out of the fight and I called her and she was on board immediately, man. And we said, we're going to fight for this harder than we fought for mid state. Harder than we fought when beggar died harder than anything. And, The number one thing I can say that started to happen immediately is we stopped reacting 
to each other's emotions. We stopped. If she said something that upset me, I didn't react. I didn't care. I didn't. I didn't. If she was in a mood that I felt uh, was bad, where I would normally be like, are you in a bad mood? I wouldn't address it. And I would try to instead look for ways to help the situation. Yeah. And it started off very small in the beginning. And we stayed, we were separated for a good, the most of that seven month separation, we were working towards our marriage, but we were paying a lease. We were in a year lease. And we're like, we're going to stay separated and we're going to go back to dating. And you know what I mean? You haven't walked up and just grabbed my hand to hold it in <laughs> a year. Let's get back there. And we did, man. And we dated. And more than anything else, I started taking inventory of myself every single day, multiple times a day. And why I was doing things. Why did I react that way? Um, and it started to kind to um manifest itself in all areas of my life even with my sons so now me being you know and before i was a great dad you can be an awesome dad and be a terrible spouse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's what totally. i was doing and now my fight to become the best spouse in the world was making me a better dad too because i was think back oh, about that's how it works right <laughs> man yeah i had the other way around <laughs> <laughs> yep. i uh I would start to think about how I reacted to my son, whether he walked up and I was doing something busy. Did I have, if I had my phone in my hand, and I hate to admit this, but if I had my phone in my hand and my sons aren't around, so I'm, I'm playing on my phone and I'm typing up a real catchy caption for a photo I took on my run, and they come up and interrupt me, I want to snap at them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I have this urge, like, God, don't interrupt me. And uh, that's, we're not allowing that to happen in our house at all anymore on both mm. fronts. And, it's not something we have to police each other up on. It's something that we've mentioned. And it's like, we see each other before anyone else. We see ourselves doing it before anyone else. Yeah. And, uh, fight and man, we more than, yeah, dude, we talked and talked and talked and talked. And I listened harder than I have ever. Usually when we would speak, I would just sort of be waiting on, her to stop so I could say what I was thinking about. <laughs> it's human nature. Dude, yeah. I stopped doing it. I started listening to her and I started seeing, started looking at her life um, from maybe how she was, <laughs> was experiencing it rather than how I was uh, perceiving it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When she left corporate America, she was on a hunt to find something find direction you know what i mean and i never fueled those fires like i should have and i never i didn't i didn't place myself in a in a position to be her partner in those things mm. as much as she had my had me man when my running she can tell you how much salt i need an hour she can tell you uh how many you know how fast i can run a the mid-state mile loop whatever she can tell you all my stuff but i couldn't tell you anything about her, anything she was Dang, doing yeah and you you came to these realizations just through the separation man like self self like inventory inventory yeah brother huh because like in the marriage while we were in under the same house i was always focused on let's clean this up let's let's clean this up and then when we separated it was like i gotta clean me up mm. and then they talk about it in rehab they talk about focusing on yourself cleaning your side of the street up first and not worrying about it, your neighborhood maybe they'll catch catch on or whatever. Yeah. 
And yeah, so man, taking these inventories, eat. what does that look like for you? Like, so quiet time. Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's meditation, man. Um, do you write this stuff down? No, I like, do. Uh, so I pictured my, when you asked, what's it look for, right for me? I was picturing myself writing, but I write, I write a gratitude list is another thing that I do often. But no, this is just like an inventory I would do like a lot of times on the on my runs. Um, anytime where I'm alone, I have a very, when I first got sober, I couldn't sit in silence. I couldn't be alone with myself because I would think about everything. And now I love it. And I think about myself um, during these, <clears throat> I'll give you an example. So like anytime I go on a big, a big run effort and I know my wife's going to wake up and have like five, six hours alone with the kids, the dogs, and life. I feel guilty. She doesn't care. I feel guilty. You know what I mean? Um, and then I'm out there alone, so I start thinking about how I feel guilty about leaving her with the house, and I start thinking about how I reacted to Gabriel when he spilt his drink on the carpet. Oh, you know what I mean? Why did I respond that way? Why did I, why did I shout at Oh, you had your phone in your hand. Oh, you were on Instagram and your son interrupted that. You were mad about that, not the soda getting spilt or whatever. And it's, yeah, man. And it's that type of inventory, you know, where I just start compounding on. It's almost like, uh, I don't know. Like I beat myself up out there, but it's good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I look at where, where I'm, where I'm failing at and. Yeah. You're able to, to like acknowledge these things to like see them. Uh, yeah. And first recognize them, acknowledge them, and then think about how you want to respond differently. Absolutely. And man, you know, why, why don't, why don't people implement this more regularly? Like, why isn't this implemented in, in every, every human being needs to be doing this? Here's um, the easiest, easiest example. So you hold the door open for somebody walking into a gas station. They don't say thank you. And, you know, a lot of us would mutter, you're welcome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right then and there. Why did you hold that door open for that individual? Mm-hmm. That's an inventory. Did you hold it open to get a thank you? Or did you hold it open because you're raised with Southern hospitality or taught not to let females open the door for themselves. Their hands are full. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I just, I think the reason why this doesn't happen. And so it's, it's a, I think it's something that every human has to do. I, this is something I do. I think, think along these same lines, inventorying myself almost continuously, um, multiple times per week. I I mean, you know, um, I think the reason people don't do this, man, is because nobody has any quiet time exactly anymore. Like, dude, I did a I did an evolution for a corporate group that hired me to train them uh, a month ago, and these people are some of them are billionaires, all of them are multimillionaires, yeah. um, in in some you know leaders of major corporations, and they wanted me to train them. So they all came to this place. I did a very simple evolution that wrecked them, dude. <laughs> I literally went out into the woods and laid yoga mats on the ground at certain intervals. I took them out there and I put them at at these spots where they couldn't see the other people out there, right? Yeah. They they this place they were isolated and I made them sit there for some hours. Oh wow. 
And they couldn't bring anything with them. Cell phone, all they could have is a bottle of water. And they didn't know when I was going to come pick them up. But it freaking wrecked them, yeah. man. And it made me recognize, like... And you know why it wrecked them? Because all of a sudden, they had some quiet time. And, and, what, and they started thinking about inventorying themselves in their life. And, and yes, I have all the material things that I could ever imagine having, but, but where, but who am I actually as a human and how am I treating other humans and my family? And, and dude, it just, it just obliterates them. Something that simple. It's so rare. I I think there are, there is the majority of the population here in the United States they don't have this time to where they can do this. Oh, yeah. And then they wonder why their entire personal life, usually is personal life is the thing that suffers. They wonder why their entire personal life is just spiraling out of control. And, yeah, there's a hundred other reasons. There's a hundred things that you could identify. But if you don't identify, if you don't have the time to sit down and think about it, identify it, inventory it, acknowledge it, and then think (laughs) about how to change it, it's just going to keep spiraling out of control. Absolutely. And so that's, that's also another such a freaking awesome thing about running long. You know, I told you earlier today, I'm just training for Cocodona. I fell in love with running again has nothing nothing to do with the activity or the yeah the movement of running feels good but it's the time it's the yeah. it's the time that's set aside to to unravel and inventory your mind yeah man it's just this intentional time that people don't freaking get you know when people have it a lot at their fingertips <clears throat> is in these commutes to work when yeah. they listen to music and distract with podcasts and stuff yeah that's when i first really saw the opportunity. So I was driving home from that VA to Noonan, Georgia. It was like an hour and 15 minutes. And I remember that I, I couldn't sit in silence. It was uneasy for me. It made me mm-hmm. want to freak out. And then uh, I told the counselor that. And so he started saying, you need to go home and sit in silence. Go figure it out. Yeah. And that's what happens is you start thinking about all the things you're distracted about. <laughs> They're distracted uh, from from yeah yeah exactly and you might even you're probably a lot of you guys aren't even distracting yourself from the important things intentionally Mm-mm. it's just by nature of of life it's right American way <laughs> Mo- yes modern life it's just by nature of that can you think freaking a thousand years ago how much alone time people had when they didn't yeah. have you know, there were they had big problems, get food, get shelter, like they had major yeah. problems to solve, but but it wasn't this busyness and like trying to amass this massive amount of wealth or this massive, you know, possessions, real estate and houses and cars and and piling all this crap up. It's like when you had what you needed, you were you were good, right? Yeah. I mean Yep. No, that's awesome, man, for you to talk through that. And I think that's a valuable thing for listeners to consider is like finding, carving out as unnatural as it's going to feel because you're going to feel like you're being less productive. And as a matter of fact, there's probably not many people out there who are, you know, coaching you in life that are going to tell you, hey, man, 
why don't you set set aside an hour plus a day to do this inventory yourself be quiet think and whether that's running or riding a bike or or just sitting in a quiet room somewhere um you can't you can't do that all the time you do have to be productive in life but like (laughs) it's such a necessary part i think of the human existence and keeping our personal lives relationships in in order you have to take time to think about those things so yeah well hey brother i want to um i want you to uh tell the listeners where they can find you follow you and uh, I want you to talk about Vertex coaching. Are you taking, uh, do you have room for new clients right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right now I'm taking on uh, full-time coaching clients and uh, I'm always making race specific training plans. What that looks like is, uh, so say like you approach me and you have the Georgia Jewel coming up 15 weeks from now and you come to me and you say, Hey, I want to run this race. Um, Georgia Jewel's a good one because I know all about it. <laughs> so you get a little discount for, for, for the ones that are super easy for me. But so I would say, okay, all right, let's jump on the phone. We've talked for generally about 30 to 60 minutes about your running history, your running availability, your wife's relationship with your running, <laughs> and, you know, just all aspects running. And I tell you um, basically that, I, you know, you tell me your goal. And I'm like, yeah, I believe this is absolutely uh, an achievable goal. And this is, you know, I'll build you a 16 week plan or not or not. Yeah. <laughs> I get some where I'm like, this is not feasible. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's good, man. <laughs> this is, I don't, yeah, I'm not going to blow smoke. I'm going to tell you for real. Um, but so yeah, I'll write a, I'll write a 16 week plan with a, a base build, uh, some peak weeks in there. And then it's, it'll all be very specific to those, that race, that person's running the, mm-hmm. the elevation, the prescribed weekly elevation goals will be based off of the, you know, the foot per mile of their race, so on and so forth. And, uh, so those are, those are, that's the cheapest way to get me in your pocket is just to come up and buy a one-time race specific training plan. And what I tell everyone, I was like, yeah, the plan, the word document that I send you, yeah, that's, you're paying for that. What you're really paying for is to get an experienced ultra runner, uh, who's ran, I've ran everything from a hundred miler on a treadmill to the most mountainous ones that say, say are in America. And, uh, so I got the experience, I got the nutrition experience, all the gear, and you get that in your pocket and for the next 16 weeks. So all the questions that I had coming up as an ultra runner that I was looking in runner's world magazine or whatever for, you know, I, you know, would have had a coach to go to. And yeah. so that's what you pay really to get a, a, someone with experience in your, at your beck and call until race day. And then where the, the, what I really like is the, the month to month coaching. And I operate off of a training platform called training peaks. And so if someone comes to me and we get on that 30 to 60 minute phone call and they're like, no, I have like three or four races in the next six months. I don't need a one-time plan. I I want you to just coach me, Mm -hmm. coach me monthly. And then, so every Sunday I upload one week for them. I only upload one week at a time, which is sort of rare from what I've heard for coaches. And I do that because it's, I don't have a job. This is all I do. So I can stare at these people's, uh, their, their information, their data when it comes in. And I program week by week, very specifically based off of last week's performance, last week's 
lack of performance, um, injuries, they say. I'm not a PT. I don't offer PT advice. But, yeah, I'll help you train, train through some, <laughs> some little niggles and stuff here and there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, man. But yeah, so yeah. The, and by the, the way, you you do have a job. You're full time coach. Yeah, there you go. Full time, full time ultra job. coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, you come on, and I send you an email, and that brings you to my online coaching platform. And then every run or workout that I prescribe and that you do, I get dinged on my watch. Hey, so and so just finished their one, or so and so just hit a new heart rate threshold. And I'm so engaged with these people on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. It is so fun um, because I I am, you know, I'll have someone go on vacation with high expectations of what they're, I'm going to be able to run 40 miles a week. And I, I find out after a week too, no. Okay, so now I'm, why are you only prescribing me three miles at a time next week? Well, you only ran 12 mm. last week. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not, yeah. you're not running 50 this week, you know? And so I'm just very, I watch them uh, with an eagle eye. And that's why I really like the month-to-month coaching. Um what what about uh what about somebody who just listened to our conversation and maybe took it to heart when we talked about for those who can't or for, maybe they took it to heart when maybe they have a, a similar maybe they've lost a, a, a buddy um, at some point in the line of duty or not um, or, or or maybe they they have someone in their family who you know can't get out and do these things and they're like. You know what? I listened to Chad and Justin, and I was and and I'm feeling that man. That stung. Yeah, I'm wasting my freaking life right now. Yeah, I don't I don't have a race. I don't know anything about running. I don't even know how to find a race. Yeah, I mean, are can those people hit you up? Are Absolutely. you willing to work with people like that, brother? Uh, so my my golden child in that era is Annie Dolan. You know, Annie? Yeah, yeah, I know Annie very well. I've so, trained many hours with Annie. <laughs> so Annie came to me, and, yeah, she was my first non-ultra uh, person. And she came from not a running background and said, hey, I want to get after it. And, man, she progressed just like everybody else. And, you know, she was running – she was training for a marathon – uh, within like four weeks or four months of working with me, you know, she's what I mean? so strong, dude. She's yeah. come, she's gonna come out and do the rite of passage. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, I, I like that. That's uh, you told me a lot about that rite of passage today. That is, that is a training and coaching thing that people need to pick up on, man. Yeah, it's just, it's different, you know, like I, I think, I think the things, the way that we coach people, we talked about it earlier, is, is so, it's, it's, we're trying to achieve the same things, but you are giving people this this personal experience yeah. where it's one on one, and where I thrive as a coach is in the team the team environment. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to. I think they pair well together because it's like you just take somebody, for instance, Annie, because she's spending the one on one time with you. She's going to be able to come out to the rite of passage mission, and she's actually going to get to learn the things that that I teach her in the team environment at a higher level yeah. because she's been over here taking care of her her herself through the 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 one on one stuff with you. Yep. That's why they pair so well together. Because if I have somebody come out to the rite of passage, that's that's never that hasn't been coached that that's never done any sort of um 
long endurance. This is the first experience they have with, you know, being on their feet for 24 hours or, you know, they haven't really trained properly for it. They're going to get through it, but they're going to miss a lot of the big picture stuff that we're trying to teach in that team environment. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? 100%. That's why they pair well together. Yeah. Um, I agree. So where do, where do people, where, how do people reach out to you yeah. for coaching? The best way right now, I'm actually working with one of my buddies to build a website. Um, one of my athletes, it becomes like a big community where we just want to help each other grow, man. But so Instagram, Instagram, ultra uh, underscore ultra, no, ultra underscore dad underscore is my Instagram handle. I'll just, attach that in the show notes of this episode, guys. Yeah. If you just search ultra dad, <clears throat> you'll find it. And, uh, yeah, I have a link tree there, and you click on it, and within that, you could just send me a DM. We could get started, but if you go through the link tree app, it sends me an email with your contact information, and I get back to you through there. And uh, yeah, so you DM me on Instagram, we'll be texting. Uh, the net that'll be the next step. Okay. Yeah. Awesome, man. That's super clean and easy. Yeah, man. Love that, brother. Dude, I wanted to say just on the marriage aspect, man is. Like anything else, man, when it gets hard, you just have to look at that individual like that they're not your problem now for life, but you're now there to live this life with them. You've chosen to create this union with them. You're in it. This is you are in the fight. Mm -hmm. It might get hard. It might get really freaking hard. You might have to physically separate, but just never... Never give up hope, man, because no matter how hard you think it is, there's always, you can push on, man. You can, and you can stay in the fight. Totally, man. There's a, so there's a mindset shift that I had to go through in marriage and it's, it's exactly what you just said, but I, I put different words to it. I said, I quit looking at my spouse and saying, how many times are you going to drag me through the mud? And I started saying, Let's go through the mud together. Let's go, baby. Because there's going to be mud, son. <laughs> Let's go. I mean, there's going to be big old just just piles of crap. Yep. You know, and, and you can play, you, you spend all this time, and, and you can play the blame game, and maybe it's obviously one or the other's fault. Yeah. Maybe that's completely obvious in, in your case, and you you're just like, then, then you just say, you know, you, you if you're if you haven't made that shift, it's always, ha, are we got that gone? It man, you're gonna drag me through this mud again. No, how many? That cannot be your response. It's all right. Let's gird our loins. Let's do and it. And let's go through the mud together, man. Yeah. You know, that's a tremendous just mindset shift. Yeah, man. Um, that. I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't stick with it long enough to ever let that shift happen. I had a guy, I did a podcast with a, some dude. I was a guest on a podcast with some guys earlier this week. And uh, the dude, you know, podcasts, a lot of them want to pigeonhole you at the end of the conversation with like, what's the number one thing you would tell people yeah. that are listening? You know, I don't do that by the way. Good. Hey, I'm not <laughs> yeah. thinking about that. It's like, dude, we just <laughs> talked for three hours. If you didn't get the thing out of the three hour long conversation, like give me a break, you man. I, you, yeah. I just gave you everything I had. Right. But this dude hits me with this question and, and 
I don't know. It ties back into what you just said because my answer to that was, um, was dude, you just, you just can't stop. Yeah. That, so that's, what's gotten me to where I am today. It's just the fact that I didn't stop. And I've been thinking about it in my, in my mind. Why do people choose to stop? Um, a whole bunch of reasons, but here, here's a little, here's a little analogy. When we hear stories from other people on podcasts, maybe they're veterans telling a story about some combat op they went on where they got the medal of honor or they, they killed 20 dudes and saved their team's life or, you know, whatever we hear these stories. When we hear stories about ultra running, uh, and people, going through these, you know, really, really difficult things and, and coming out the other end. So in all of those stories, the story is essentially about a person who walked through a pile of crap, yeah. right? But they didn't create the crap. But they walked through a pile of crap and they cut and they came out the other side and when you walk through that type of pile of crap, you come out the other side and everybody looks at you and they're like, heck yeah, yeah man. man. You just walk through that crap, dude. Right? Uh, and, and, and there's there's a story and, there's all, yeah. and everybody's fired up, right? Okay. Let me tell you, there's another type. Th- this is more along the lines of the crap I've walked through in my life. So those are the stories we always hear. We never hear the stories that are the real life, real true stories because nobody wants to tell them. We never hear the stories about the individual who walks through the crap that they created for themselves and they get out the other side of that pile of crap and everybody looks at them and everybody looks at, at at, at, at me and they they look at me and they're like dude you got crap all over you yeah and you're like holy yeah I'm covered in crap and you know what most people do when when they get out the other side and and everybody's pointing at them like they're laughing the, the crap well they either go straight <laughs> back in the crap or they go hide in a corner somewhere yeah man because they're covered in crap and they're like I don't want people to see me covered in crap that's shame yeah brother. right that's shame so those are the stories that we never hear. So th- this is what I mean when I say just don't stop. Yeah. I mean when you're when you're in that midst of that pile of freaking crap and it's neck deep and you know you're going to come out the other side and everybody that loves you, every one of your teammates, everybody around you is going to look and point at you and, and you're going to feel this shame, you know they're all going to look at you and say, dude, you're covered in crap. You need to go hide, Yeah. right? Well, that most people just stop right there in the midst of that pile of crap, and they never come out the other side of it. And if they do, they go and hide. And they never tell that part of the, their story. <laughs> that never comes up, man, right? And so what I mean by you just can't stop it means walk through the crap that you, even if you created it. And when you come out the other side and all of your peers are looking and laughing at you, telling you you're a straight piece of crap because you're covered in crap, you look right back at them and you say, yeah, man, I'm covered in crap, but guess what? I'm going to keep going. Yeah. 
I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep headed in the right direction. Yep. That's what it means when I say you just can't stop. That that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. Yeah. You, Justin, that's why you just told us about a pile of crap you walked through and the people that you loved and you created it for yourself essentially and you came out the other end of it and you just chose not to stop even though everybody saw the crap on you you're here on the 307 podcast talking to tens of thousands of people being honest with them this is what it looks like to not stop y'all get that does anybody get that because i'm not trying to be motivational when i tell you don't stop no the Choosing not to stop when you're covered in crap and ashamed, but choosing to keep moving, that's freaking hard, man. Amen. There ain't no motivation in that. There ain't no inspiration in that. You just got to keep moving. And if you keep moving long enough, you'll be able to come on a podcast like Justin just did today, and you'll be able to tell that story. It might take some years. But you'll, you'll be able to tell that, right? Because you get the crap cleaned off of you Eventually, if you yeah. keep moving. Keep on moving. That's exactly right. People don't freaking understand that, man. That's the best way I can describe it to you. Yep. So thank you for allowing me to interject that rant. No, man. That's, I was, that's what I came for, brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I just thought it was a, a pertinent to the conversation. That was good. That's so. a good point to end on there. I like it. <sighs> All right, guys. Hit Justin up. Um, start working on yourself, man, and uh, bring him alongside you. And he's dedicated to helping you with that journey. And if you don't know by now, you know by now the journey he's been through, uh, which qualifies him to help you through your journey. And, um, and we appreciate you tuning in. Justin, I appreciate you being here. I know it took a lot of courage. You're going to be exhausted. Dude, God is great, man. I tell you what, like I uh, I told Doug, I said a year ago, if you'd have told me, I'd have been going to Chad's house. Not only because we were training for Mid-State, but just, yeah, man, God is uh, so good <laughs> all the time. And I appreciate this opportunity more than you know, man. Yeah, we just had to wait on his timing. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I'm going to be tired. And uh, I'm also going to be tired soon when I get done building my sauna because <laughs> that's happening. Heck yeah, brother. <laughs> all right, guys. That's what we got for you today. Share the dang show. All right? This is a show you need to share. By the way, and I'm about to end it, but look, if you listen to this podcast, understand I don't run, I don't pay to advertise for this podcast. The only way this podcast helps the maximum amount of people is if you guys walk up to someone who might be struggling through similar things that Justin has went through. And say, hey man, I just heard this podcast. Let me look at let me show you where it's at on your phone. Give me your phone real quick. Look it up. Download the dang episode for them so that they'll go and listen to it. That's the way that this whole thing operates on word of mouth. There's no algorithm to the yeah, podcast. Man. It doesn't matter what I title it, it doesn't matter a thumbnail, is there's no algorithm. It's literally you guys sharing the show. If you want to make an impact, you don't have to have a story like Justin's. You don't have to go through that. You can make an impact by taking these stories and passing them along to the people who they're going to help. Y'all understand that? 
you can make an impact. Even if you you don't have to have a social media platform, you don't have to have some crazy story of struggle and redemption. Take the stories that we capture here and and other people you listen to and pass them along, man. That's the way it works. Don't be selfish. All right, so share the show. Enough said. <laughs>